coming up next on the Wetfly Swing podcast. All of a sudden, you realize you paid them fifty bucks instead of five bucks for a cab ride, um, that sort of thing. And then the guy just goes to you know the confession on Friday and says, "Father, you know I ripped off the tourist." And then the priest just says, "Well, listen, I want you to say twenty-five Hail Marys, do twenty-five push-ups, and give me twenty-five U.S. dollars," and the bubble's back to zero. You're okay again. That was David Lambroughton describing his experience traveling and fishing Argentina. We're heading to New Zealand today as we sprinkle in some world travel along the way. Today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. A great way to help us get the word out there and help some other anglers up their game is to share this podcast If you've been listening to this show in the past, go ahead and find a good episode or one that you love and share it out to a friend or someone you know. Today's episode is sponsored by Drifthook, who has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos, easy-to-follow guides. Their fly shop quality flies are hand-tied and inspected before being packed in their durable, double-sided, water-resistant fly boxes. Visit drifthook.com right now and use promo code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your first order. We are also sponsored by Fairflies, who creates ethically sourced premium fly tying materials with their 5D brushes. You simply tie better flies faster. 5D brushes contain the perfect proportions to tie amazing streamers, bass flies, salt flies, and more. Fairflies also creates intentional supply chains so you can change the world with every fly you tie. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies right now to get started. That's F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. David Lamb Broughton shares his unique career uh, creating fly fishing calendars and traveling the world. He's got a lifetime doing this and he's connected with many of the biggest names out there. He now travels and spends half his time in New Zealand. And he talks about that today as he digs into it, talks about why New Zealand is so special. We talk about actually putting together a DIY trip to New Zealand, which is really cool on this one. And it's actually not as hard as you might imagine uh, to do this thing. So this is going to be a good one. I think if you ever thought about New Zealand and thought maybe it was a little too much, I think we're going to shed some light to let you realize this is actually doable and uh, and it's not going to be quite as big or as costly as you might imagine. I'm excited to share this one with you because this is a long one and a good one. So without further ado, here we go. Here he is, David Lambroughton. How's it going, David? Uh, good. Nice morning up here in BC. Yeah. Overcast. Yeah, falls just peaking. That's right. That's right. Where are you at in uh, BC? I live in the Okanagan Valley, which is this valley right at the very northern end, about 120 or 30 miles over the border from Washington. And that same valley runs all the way down to Wenatchee and just oh, big yeah. lakes and a fruit growing area and apple orchards. And it's really a beautiful place to live. I, I love living here. Yeah, yeah, you're right in the, um, I've been through that area, driven through there a few times. Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, you're getting into lake country, right? Do you have more, are you more uh, streams or lakes? What's your, what's your go-to fishing? Well, it's all lakes around here. Um, we streams fishing with uh, salmon fry migrating to, you know, out of lakes and things and a little isolated fishing there in the springtime um, and a little bit in the summer, but mostly it's all lake fishing right around here. And uh, that's just been fabulous and i can see uh, 
uh, in the future with you know dewatering rivers and everything down south in Montana, Idaho, and uh, yeah, agriculture grabbing the water. Um, you know, lake fishing is going to be of increasing value to traveling anglers. It's very consistent. There's thousands mm-hmm. of lakes. So um, anyway, that's been kind of a new dis- discovery for me after uh, laying off of them for a number of decades. But oh kinda, yeah, yeah, Phil, after, with the steelhead runs kind of you know on the decline there um it really filled in september and october nicely for me for uh going fishing yeah and do you know uh do you know phil roley and uh brian chan up there oh yeah they're the gold standard uh you yep. know they've done it all that you know so anything to do with lakes or uh all their shows programs magazine things they're they've written books they're really they're they're the two guys that know what it, they know the most put it that way i guess yeah, that's right. That's right. Nice. Well, we're we're probably going to talk a little bit about lakes as we talk about some of the fishing you do around. You do some fishing all over BC and even over to New Zealand. You kind of split your time. But you also have this calendar that you've been putting together for a number of years, this fly fishing calendar, which is really uh, amazing photography. We're probably going to dig into a little bit on that and maybe even some photo tips if people stick around here as we go. Sure. Um, but yeah, but let's uh, let's start us off first, you know, as we get into this, um, you know, I like to kind of start back on just the fishing, you know, take us back uh-huh. really quick to how you first got into fishing, and then we'll take it into how you came to like have a, a business in making fly fishing calendars. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, actually, I grew up in California in Sunnyvale, right in the middle of um, Silicon Valley these days. Um, and uh, there was an old guy down the street named Martin Ulrich, and his wife was uh, best friends with my mom. And then uh, his wife died suddenly. So he was an old kind of a mentor for me. And I'd go down there and talk about fishing, and he'd give me big stacks of uh, outdoor life, field and stream, sports and field, that stuff, um, and equipment. He gave me all kinds of things. Anyway, stuff you kind of learn about giving as a kid. I just try and replicate that these days anyway so that's how i got the bug my parents my dad never really fished at all um so we started out there and and got in there and my mom would drive us to uh golf courses and places that would sneak in it before dark before daybreak and <laughs> fish golf course ponds for bass or whatever's in there we didn't like yeah. we liked it all um anyway so then um i just had i did that and then i um Took a couple of trips up to Sun, uh, Dunsmuir in Northern California with uh, my dad and Mr. Ulrich. Anyway, so I kind of got the bug. But what really happened, what really the turning point uh, for me was when uh, my parents retired and moved uh, from uh, the Bay Area there up to where I live now, British Columbia here. Um, so I started going, coming up here in college summers, and I would buck hay for the local dairy farmer and, and you know, make money. It's like getting paid to work out, actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, <laughs> and then as soon as I first finished that first cut of hay, I'd take my dad's truck and try not to get stuck in too many mud holes. And anyway, off we'd go. Buddies would come, and we'd fish all these lakes around here, then do the second cut of hay. Same thing. Go get some money. Go fishing like <laughs> crazy. And then, um, at, and then fish right to the very end where I'd have to ride, drive my car uh, back to San Jose, you know, 24 hours straight almost, uh, to register for fall classes and all that. <laughs> and also at that time, I took something that really kind of was a real turning point as well as, uh, I met Bob Quigley. He taught a fly tying class. So I took a fly tying class, I think about 1971 from, uh, from Bob at, uh, the fly hutch, Neil Bohannon's fly hutch in Santa Clara on El Camino Real. Anyway, so we formed kind of a friendship there. So, just as soon as I got out of college and graduated, I went up and joined Bob at uh, Rick's Lodge uh, on Fall River in Northern California in 1976. 
Um, anyway, so we would tie flies for the shop, the biggest mayfly hatch I've ever seen anywhere in the world, actually, at that at that time. Anyway, and and um, and guided. You know, we would take people out for the morning hatch for thirty five dollars, and then a full day floating all the way down to Island Park Bridge. There would be fifty five dollars. So, wow. so uh, it was lean. We anyway, that was a great education, and and. Uh, yeah. Bob was an incredible guy, but you know, at the end of the season, you had to. We, I, I lived on uh, a California quail and a big California <laughs> gray, gray squirrels. Throw them in the crock nice. pot. Anyway, so that was kind of how it all started. Um, and after that, um, uh, real quickly, I just went into. Uh, I started g- getting guide jobs. Um, I went up to Alaska, Bristol Bay Lodge. There, that was a great education there. Um, and then the next year, I uh, guided for Randall Kaufman uh, in uh, on the Deschutes River. Oh wow. Uh, dove into the steelhead stuff. Um, and then after that, I, um, got some job. I met, um, I got married and, um, for a honeymoon in 1980, we went to, uh, uh, New Zealand and, uh, that just got me addicted down there. And I met Pat Barnes, my wife and I met Pat Barnes down there, who oh, yeah. was a frequent, uh, visitor there and had a fly shop in West Yellowstone. So he asked me if I wanted to guide for him. So I got it for Pat Barnes there in West Yellowstone for two years, and then he retired and sold his business out. And uh, then I got it for Madison Brown for about three years, three or four years. Um, and that was just a wonderful education, um, you know, and meeting uh, some of the guides who had been there many years prior to me. And, you know, they just follow the leads and, you know, we just go right through the whole season there in West Yellowstone. Um, anyway, and then one day um, I met um, John Randolph. He, uh, Dave Edgarbretson was a friend of mine. I met him up in Alaska there when I was at BL. And um, he brought by our cabin, uh, John Randolph from Fly Fisherman, uh, the editor, the new editor mm-hmm. at that time. And um, that just kicked off a bunch of writing uh, projects. And John and I became fast friends and um, ended up fishing all kinds of places, Iceland, uh, Ireland. And he came down to uh, up to B.C. here. We did the the, uh, the uh, Copper River and all that up here and did some other exploratory stuff. Um, and then he came down to New Zealand a few times and uh, we'd fish down there. Anyway, we'd coordinate these with uh, writing stories for the magazine. And uh, then I remember right. on the way home, we stopped and we fished in Fiji and Tahiti for bonefish one year. <laughs> and so anyway, I still yeah. am in contact with him. He's just a wonderful, you know, he was yeah. the nicest editor I've ever worked with. And just we'd have really fun conversations. Conversations once a month at least on the phone there, and share all the gossip and everything. So, hi, Mark for Mr. John Randolph. And oh, yeah. He's still yeah, he's doing huge. well and uh, living there yeah. in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Wow, wow. So this is cool. You, so you, I mean, you're throwing out some names: Kaufman. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, John and the the, the Quigley, the Quigley uh, cripple, right? That's another. Oh yeah, he was one of the most talented fly tires you'd ever meet, and uh, yeah. to sit across the table from him at. Uh, after you know, at the end of the day, they're on Fall River, they're in tie flies and shoot the shoot the breeze there, and um, yeah, that was just a great education. Oh yeah, and Randall Kaufman, you know, I, I love that story too because the guy that uh, you know, I mean, he had his own in his own right, right? The uh, the Kaufman oh yeah, he, stone oh yeah, and, he was and, a shrewd, uh, he's one of the shrewdest yeah. guys, and um, actually, I ended up uh, I built a house on the Tongaro River, uh, at Tongaro at. Tongaro River Lodge there, they had a deal there where you build a house and then you could rent it out when you're not there. Where was that now? Is that is that Alaska? That, no, that, that's in uh, New Zealand, North Island there. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up selling my house actually to Randall um, after, a couple of years after I owned it. Oh, right. Right. Because Randall had a huge, right? Because when Coffins was going, they had a huge travel program, maybe one of the bigger ones at the time. 
Oh yeah, they were. They yeah, they had a really good good handle for all that stuff. Anyway, and I still see him. That he's got a, him and Mary live have a beautiful home there in uh, Jackson Hole, and another one in uh, Portland. So when I'm out in the summertime, Montana, Idaho, well, in Jackson Hole area, I stop and visit them, stay there a little bit, and then we go fishing. And so it's been kind of a lifetime friendship, actually. So uh, that's cool. Yeah, that's part of all the networking. I think that's what a lot of this is. You know, it's just building a good network of friends, and you learn so much, and you know, prosper that way with each other. You know, anyway, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you got. I mean, we could. Pre- and this is what's cool about this is because you know these are all connections that. We've talked about, you know, some of these guests had some of, you know, them on the podcast in the past. And, and so it's, it's good making the connections here with you. And then, so it sounds like, yeah, you've did a lot. You, you've been doing this for a long time. So how did, um, it seems like the calendar right, right now is taking up a lot of your time. How did, uh, talk about how that came to be well, really producing this. Well, it actually take up too much time. Um, I, the way it is, I, if you just look at it as a 40 hour a week job, you know, if I add it all up with, um, you know, calling people up, taking the orders, writing the invoices, uh, loading the pizza boxes up, that's most of them go into those things, uh, going to the post office, all stuff. It's probably about a, it's probably about two weeks worth of work really. And the rest, the other 50 weeks, I just pretty much go fishing or do whatever I want. Uh, but I've always, you know, it's, I don't call, I don't consider going fishing with friends work cause I would do that. I would do that for free. Anyway, I do the whole thing for free actually. Um, yeah. it's, I just love it. So, and I love the photography every bit as much as the fishing. So, um, it's fun. And I have friends that come and join me in New Zealand or everywhere I go pretty much. And I'm not a guy I don't do any of that sort of thing, but I really can feed off of their enthusiasm, you know, and, you, and it's fun to kind of train people up a little bit and show them how the, you know, what happens there in New Zealand or how to catch those fish. Um, you know, and I, and I still fish quite a bit too, but I'm there behind the scenes with the camera and, uh, you know, I kind of like, it's fun. I really enjoy that part and, um, I get a big charge off of them. So when I go up some stream, there's a nice five pound trout rising to something there. And, you know, obviously sometimes quite easy to take. Sometimes they're not, but a lot of times they're just gift fish. We call them, um, I'm not going to cast to that because some friend of mine who is visiting, uh, you know, who had a tough life or you know, the normal life, kids, house payments, car payments, hates his job, you know, whatever. He deserves that fish. And mm-hmm. to him, you know, a nice five pound fish, it'll just be fabulous memory forever. And for me, it's just another one. But so um, I, I would feel guilty if, if I took an easy fish from some, you know, that somebody could have really enjoyed and, and right. uh, loved the experience. So anyway, that's how it kind of works. Gotcha. So you pretty much now, and you, it sounds like you've been doing this for a while, where you you're in BC half the year, you're in New Zealand half the year, and then you're pretty much just, you have your camera, you're taking shots, and then you're using those for the calendar that you yeah, produce. And it, yeah. yeah, it all just works together perfectly. So, um, you know, I, I usually, I like this year, I'm maybe my 40th trout season there in New Zealand. Um, I, I'll depart here November 20th, and I get back around April 20th. So five months down there, that's a, that's a pretty full shot. Usually I go about four or five months. Um, gotcha. It's going to be extra special this year since last two years with COVID, you know, New Zealand was closed. So uh, now it's time to just go back there and kiss the ground. All right. Uh, I mean, I just couldn't love a place more. Just uh, I go there really. And besides all the fishing and the great uh, opportunity with so many different landscapes to uh, and, and environmental zones, you can get so much a great variety of photographs. The whole thing just renews my faith in humanity in today's crazy world. Yeah. So the COVID thing, you couldn't go out there for a couple of years to New Zealand? Yeah, they closed New Zealand, just shut right down two years. And you typically, when do you typically leave for New Zealand? 
November. Yeah, I usually get there and, you know, I like to I get there and get all settled in. And, um, you know, December, they're all great months, but I think I like December maybe the most. It's, you know, springtime down there. So the weather can still be a little bit snotty at times. But, you know, you get the big bl- flowers are blooming everywhere. The fish haven't been fished for all winter pretty much. Um and, you know, they're easy to take and, you know, I, and there's more, there's a little bit more water in some of the high country streams a little bit that later, you know, the fish will back out of a little bit into the bigger river. So there's gotcha. a little more real estate to work with. Um, but anyway, it's just lovely. The whole, the yeah. whole season there. So basically November, so kind of coming up to this time of year, you're getting, you're heading out to New Zealand and then, and are you going back there here uh, pretty soon? Yeah, November 20th, I'm off. I, I hit the air, airport on November 20th here at Kelowna and, um. I'll uh, go. I'll be down there November twenty second. You lose a day when you go that direction. Yep. Yeah. So you'll be down there November, and then how long will you be down there? Oh yeah, it's right right through uh, most of uh, April. Oh wow, and, April. And what? And we're like, what's the state? Are you staying? You have a place down there? Well, no. I do what I do now, and um, uh, it works really well. Is um, I just get these. Co- I rent cottages. And I have a main one. I just rent kind of the whole season there. Um, but I use about three or four different ones. So what basically, when it works down, people come down. Um, I'll pick them up in uh, Queenstown, say, for example. That's a real common one. I spend, I've, I've, for years, I I used to split my time evenly between the North Island and the South Island. But the last uh, 10 or 15 years, pretty much all South Island, and especially the southern half of the South Island. It just fits me better. Um, anyway, so I'll pick up a friend in um, Queenstown, and then we'll we'll fish you know, down in the Southland for a couple of weeks, and then we go up to Amerima maybe a little bit there for a week, over the West Coast for a week or so, and then uh, I'll drop drop that buddy off at uh, Hokitika there on the West Coast and then pick up another friend who comes in on the same plane and then just reverse that. So it gives me people to take photos of and share the cost with. So um, basically, uh, I that's the way I, I like it. For people who go, haven't been down there before, you know, just the, the, the tendency is, and it makes sense, go see everything. You want to see all the sites and everything. But after you do that enough, enough times, I like just, I don't want to pack and unpack every day. So we just load the, we just go to the grocery store, load it up with the best food, wine, all the beer, everything, mm-hmm. and just settle in for a week or two in one spot, sometimes longer, sometimes a month. Gotcha. Um, anyway, and then you just walk out the front door and fish. So it cuts down all that road time driving, yeah. especially the price of gas these days so it's, it's settling i like to just walk out the door and walk across the field and that's cool hit the river so it's all sense. fishing and mixing a little golf on rainy days <laughs> I, we have, nice we've got a couple sets of golf clubs down there and i like sure. playing golf and you know if the weather weather's off or i just need a break or whatever i just go play golf or or go play nine holes quickly in the morning yeah. and then go fishing in the afternoon or you know from 10 o'clock to five that's a kind of a nice well-rounded day you know right how is that getting for those that have never been to new zealand it's one of those destinations what's what's that like getting down there like if you're heading out from say the bc is that a, a well pretty, it's it's yeah. not. It's it's um, actually it's it's more pleasurable. It fits your body and 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 the jet lag business better than flying to Europe. Um, so I leave in the evenings, you know, out of Vancouver, um, and then you just have you know a meal and kind of a crappy night's sleep a little bit, and then you wake up and there it's it's morning. It's six thirty seven in the morning, and then you just go through customs, um, and then um, and then your baggage is transferred to wherever you're headed to. Probably you want to. Not stay in Auckland too much. Not much going on there. It's a big urban, crazy city. Uh, anyway, fly down to Tapo or fly down the South Island to Queenstown or where you're going. 
How long is it when you leave uh, Vancouver to get to actual like New Zealand, the main airport there? It's about a 12, 12 and a half hour flight. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it, it fits right. your body. It fits your body clock just fine. Really. You know, yeah. you go sleep and wake up. You're there. Like you said, you're a day later. Yeah, you lose a day on the bed on the way home. It's the longest, you know, April twentieth of your life. You know, it goes right. so just in reverse. <laughs> so it's really simple and really easy. Yeah, uh, that's what appeals to me about New Zealand. It really suits yourself to kind of go there and do it on your own. You know, if you gotcha. wanted to, so you could, so you can go down to DIY. You can kind of go DIY New Zealand if you wanted to. Yeah, I just go down there, rent a car, and and um, it, well, after you get over there for hit a little bit, which isn't too bad. Yeah. Um, it's just like going to Montana. What's the airfare there right now? Well, right now, uh, it was uh, this last one was about twenty eight hundred um, uh, Canadian. Oh right, so, so that's more like uh, maybe like uh, two thousand US or something. Yeah. yeah, and usually it's a little bit less, and it may come down, but yeah, um, that's that's they they did jump up from the last time we did this, uh, you know, two years ago. Um, but you can look around, you can certainly get some really good deals. Um, you know, so if you shop around, I'm sure you can get the price even lower. Right, right, right. Wow. That's amazing. So you, so you've been going down to New Zealand for uh, a number of years. So how many years have you been going down there? Uh, for, uh, 1980. Uh, so this would be 40, uh, 42, 42, 42, 43 years, I guess. Yeah, crazy. So you've been going down there all, I mean, that's a, a cool, it's <laughs> just an amazing amount of time. So you probably know it as well as anybody. The cool thing is you have a perspective of somebody coming in, you know, kind of a, a like an expat sort of thing, right? Coming in and you're down there for six oh, months. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I wandered around like an idiot for a couple of years till you kind of figured out how to do it. But what, what kind of worked out after I started writing some stories and stuff um, and get, and um, got a little bit of a following, I would uh, – and I worked with, a little bit with Frontiers off and on where I would lead groups to Argentina or Chile or someplace uh, – I explore Russia or China or whatever. But they would – I'd take groups down there to uh, New Zealand. And at that time, we'd do the, do the lodge tour. So we'd, we'd start – we'd do maybe four days of fishing at Tongariro Lodge and then go down to Lake Rotoroa Lodge on the South Island and then go down to uh, – Lake Brunner Lodge, a lot of spring creeks around there, or uh, a couple of times to Cedar Lodge. Those were the main lodges at the time. Now there's a whole bunch more. But um, anyway, in that process, you know, I met all the top guides, you know, who worked for these lodges. Most of these, and most of those guides would go independent and get out of the lodge guiding business and have build up their own clientele. But Tony Atwistle, a lot, you know, Peter Cardi, all kinds of them. Um, you got to know, and you learned all this. You learned the tricks, how to do it and how to fish. So you know, there was a real education. Yeah. So you did the lodge thing for like how many years did you do the lodge thing? Oh, I did that then... just for a couple of years and off and on. Um, but then pretty soon I just uh, you know would go down and just spend, you know instead of flying down there maybe two or three times in a year sometimes at the most uh, it was just like well, I just go for the whole shot you know you know yeah. go for three or four or five months at a time. Um, anyway, gotcha. and then I'd buy a car and then I built that house in uh, North uh, uh, Tongariro Lodge. Um, anyway, so you just kind of meet people and meet friends and it just it's i feel every bit as at home there as i do here in canada uh and it's just it's really like bc of the south pacific it's it's mm. the same a lot of friends will come down there and he'll say wow this is just like canada this is like british columbia and if you kind of look at um new zealand it's it, it's a little miniature 
BC in a way, you know, got a West Coast there with uh, gets like 25 or 30 feet of rain a year. You know, Milford's out all that area, and then you go in the interior and you go over the you know, the, the mountain range there, snow-capped peaks and stuff. And you come into a drier landscape that uh, might get 10 or 15, you know, almost treeless because there's no. It's like going to Ennis, Montana, you know, like that. Yeah. And then you go to and then some places look like Hawaii, you know, with uh, the West Coast or in the North Island especially, a lot of tree ferns and it's it's really lush in that way too so you get all this and you're never more than about 75 or 80 miles from the ocean no matter where you are in new zealand in one direction or the other so that's right there oh photographer's heaven you just have every so when i take my little tour with my buddies um you know we have distinctly different environments so it just gives you a lot of variety to take photos of for me yeah i couldn't have made i don't think i could have made a living uh putting the calendar and magazine work and stuff over the years and and working for the actually new zealand tourism department yeah a little bit too that was a nice payday but um i couldn't have done it without new zealand it was just um the light down there you know the air comes off the tasman sea and it's just as clear it's that beautiful clear air you know we don't have to deal with forest fire smoke like we do in montana idaho or sometimes here in bc so it's clear of clean of the air's never you couldn't see air that clear and that just makes photos sparkle you know when you have those kind of colors renditions um anyway so yeah wow this is cool no i love affair with the, with the i love it I, I love where you're going with this because i mean i think there's a lot of ways we could take this we've got the the diy new zealand which is what you've done but you also have all the knowledge 40 years of going there so you have a lot of the lodge so yeah well one thing i'd recommend real quick here is that if, when people go down there and they haven't been there it's it it would be wise to actually split it you, know, with you and your buddy or something you can split the cost and you know rental cars and all that stuff but hire a guide a really good guide for a couple of days uh, and then you really all of a sudden, the, and then the rest of your trip, you're going to really profit from that. Right. You'll learn the tricks and you'll spotting fish and and, and what's right. nice. And what you learn down there, it's like a, getting a PhD. You learn you, when you go up a river, you you get a really awareness just what those fish can see and what they can hear, uh, and how they react. And you know, for as a fly tire, it's just it's it's a heaven because you can just see their reaction to everything you do. And you know, and then right. sometimes it works, and then often it doesn't. Where would you find a good? Where would you recommend finding a, a good guide? It doesn't matter. Can you just go to any lodge and call somebody? Or what would you recommend? Oh no, I would um, I would stick to um, just kind of the main stalwarts there. I get people that contact me all the time. I get that's a common thing. Let's just say somebody was listening right now, and, and this is sounding good. Like uh, you know, they can come up with a couple thousand and, and think about DIYing it. Who who? Would oh they... yeah yeah. Oh Ronan, uh, Ronan Crean out of Alexandra, just a young kid. Uh, I mean, well he's not young. He's forty, I guess. Got kids yeah. now. Ronan, how do you spell that? R-O-N-A-N, and then his last name is C-R-E-A-N-E. Okay. Uh, Ronan Crean is excellent. Um, uh, Chris Doerr out of Queenstown, a longtime famous booked-up guide. Um, okay. He's wonderful. Uh, Chris Doerr, like it sounds, Doerr. Uh-huh. Uh, Peter, uh, Paul McCarthy. Um, uh, <laughs> Paul McCartney. <laughs> Paul McCartney, you know. Um, anyway, um, and there's a few other ones. Dean Bell down there, Tiano. He's booked solid, but uh, okay. he, um, you know, probably not the best guide for anyone who's not very skilled. He doesn't. Gotcha. He's a little rough on people. Yeah, they yeah. blow it. Uh, Tony Tony Antwistle is fabulous, and all these guides too. If they're booked up, most of them are pretty booked up. They'll recommend people that you know that they know real well and and uh, yeah. or I know as well. So those are that's a good place to start. Okay. That's perfect. And it sounds like, and we'll just go on this track a little bit more on, 
on the DIY thing. So sounds like December is a good time to, you know, if you had to pick one. The great thing is December, it's cold here, but over there, what's the weather like? Well, yeah, there? actually December, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfect month. You pretty much wear shorts the whole time and, and, <laughs> and you wear, and you wet wade almost the entire season. There's no point in wearing waders really, except for the odd place. Um, anyway, you, when you do a lot of hiking up and down rivers, you don't need waders and you know, the water's yeah. not that cold. Generally it's in the low sixties, uh, most of the rivers I fish. Um, so it's comfortable. I mean, on a warm day, it's in the water than on the bank actually. Uh, but anyway, so December is a nice month. And, and, um, one thing that was a great advantage with uh, the month of December is what I would for a number of years, I would, um, uh, come back from the South Island early trip down there and, and I'd get up to, uh, Tarangi where I'd cut, was based there for a while for about 10, 15 years. And we would get the helicopters, uh, Helisica there, uh, on a topo, and we'd fly into the Rangitiki River, which was probably the greatest trout river in the world, or top five. Uh, it was just um, un- unbelievable. Um, what makes that great, uh, David? Like, what makes that the one of the greatest in the world? Well, it's just a natural habitat. Not, there's nothing, no agriculture, no land, no people, no humanity. Yeah. And what are the species? What are the fish species you're going for? Well, rainbow trout, and, and and there's a few browns in there, but most the North Island is kind of 90% rainbows and 10% browns, and South Island would be just the opposite, almost all browns and maybe 10% rainbows in some fisheries. But anyway, but we, what we do is, we this is what people ought to, if you ought to try and focus on this, you, you helicopter into the Rangitiki River around December 21 or something like that. That's what we would do. And that's a kind of a dead time because no one – it's Christmas time. Everyone's busy with getting ready for Christmas. There's not very many tourists. The lodges are kind of empty because, you know, not many people are going to spend Christmas there. So we'd have that river to ourselves for maybe 10 days. And then and then all of a sudden, you know, the vacation season starts. In uh, January. For, for, in January. And also yeah. January is kind of a month probably just for anybody flying down there besides getting into those North Island rivers. Avoid. January because um, that's vacation time for the Kiwis. So if you're going to have oh. a, if you're going to have a deck bill on your house or you need a plumber or something, that'd be the worst month to, to have a problem. Um, anyway, so that's a busy time and the kids are out of school then. So and then about the the 20th or 25th, right around there, all the kids are back in school and all of a sudden things are you know the vacation time's over, fewer people out on the rivers. Um, anyway, and you're so and that makes February probably the busiest month. Um, that's probably. There's a lodge owner told me one time, he said, um, I said, what's your, your busiest month or you know, whatever? And he said, well, February. He goes, it's not necessarily the best fishing month of the year, but it's the, it fits people's schedules best you know, to get away from North America, shorten the winter up a little bit. So February is a busy, busy time for the lodges and the guides, and as is early March. You know? So then you yeah. get into fall fishing there. Wow. Wow. So this is awesome. Basically what you're saying is a uh, good time could be December, especially if you could go over the holidays that you could get a break there. And then as you get into January, especially February, that that's kind of the real busy time for people out there. So would you not recommend that time? Oh, yeah, no, the, I mean, yeah. It's, it's a nice weather. It's a settled. It's like July or August in a way. Uh, the yep. fish are a little trained, you know, they've been fished for a little bit, so they're not quite as easy to fool, but who, that just makes it more fun. Um, anyway, you can always find on pretty much untouched water if you just snoop around and hike a little bit. Um, and a lot of people miss, you know, a lot of things besides all the big famous rivers um, in the, in the drain the big valleys. There's all kinds of little small streams that you can just have a ball on yourself. They're, they're 
more intimate. The fish are the same size. So um, I have a yeah. dozen, dozen, couple of dozen of those things that in the summer wanderings, it's like visiting old friends, you know, a little stream here and you fish up and you remember the the big fish that got away and the ones that didn't and, and all, you know, yeah. you, just have, you have a history with them. What is the, uh, when you think of the, um, you know, you've got all these rivers, all these waters, these amazing waters, and you have you gave us some names of guides. Is that the best recommendation just to maybe call some of those guys? I mean, how would you figure out where to go setting up the trip? What would be your recommendation? Like if you had, say, let's say you had three weeks or something like that. Yeah, well, probably a good thing to do would be not try, not try and do too much. Um, I had somebody here a year or two ago. They said, oh, I want you to give us some advice on the trip. We're, 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 um, we're coming for uh, two weeks, and uh, we wanna, we're going to fish the North Island for one week and the South Island for one week. So my response to that was, well, first off, uh, just drive, just the driving from the North Island down to the bottom of the South Island would take you about Three days, you know, oh, wow. of actually road time, you know, really, because it's not freeways, really. Um, yeah. And then mix in some dicey weather, so a little bit of rain or, you know, some problems, you're going to lose a couple of days. So it basically, it's a frantic trip, and you get about six or eight days of fishing out of two weeks. Uh, for, you know, don't bite off so much. Just pick out a smaller area. So basically, uh, you if you want to do a little loop trip or something, you could fly to Christchurch, rent a car there, um, and then go over to go over to the west coast of the South Island over Arthur's Pass. Um, and anyway, and that's and if you haven't driven on the left hand side of the road, that's oh, yeah, I, I, that's a great place to start out because you're you're going right into you know kind of rural areas rather than trying to drive out of Auckland or something. Um, anyway, and then just go down down the west coast, come over the interior, and make a bit of a loop, and then eventually fish your way around there, hook up with some guys, and then come back, drop your car off in Christchurch, or just fly to Queenstown, rent a car there, and then just use that as a base. That's kind of a hub of a lot of different rivers, you know, all the, in that whole area. And uh, just less time driving and more time fishing. And you can figure out all kinds of places to go. Um, and, you know, also, you know, with people, you can get a book there, John Kent, Dr. John Kent. He's written a bunch of books on fishing New Zealand. So you get the South Island Guide or the North Island Guide. Oh, there you go, John Kent. And there'll be hundreds of... They'll, I, I counted them up. There's like they listed like 353 rivers on the South Island. So there's everything you cross. Every bit of water pretty much is a trout stream. Uh, some are better than others. Uh, some are, have glacial in them, and so they're not too mm -hmm. productive. But there'll be some spring creeks that feed into them or something that you know that you'll you'll discover there that uh, are the tributaries of glacial rivers. So anyway, oh, okay. Tremendous yeah. variety of stuff there. That's a great resource. So John Kent is a good resource. You can pick up his yeah, books. Yeah, and you'll see those books at the airport or every bookstore. Oh, okay. I'll put some links to everything we talk about today in the show notes. So if you're looking at the North Island versus the South Island, are you saying one is a little maybe easier for the DIY over the other? Well, I was, you know, I kind of, I really like the South Island just because it's, there's, it, it's about one half larger than the North Island, and it's got about one half the population. So the density oh, okay. way down. It's just wilder that way. The North Island, though, has its charm. Um, it's more like Hawaii, a lot of the settings, um, and, and some nice rainbow trout fisheries. But it requires a lot more driving, and you got, and you're competing with a lot more people up there. But one exception would be uh, if you want to go to the North Island, why not take a taste there? Uh, uh, go to the Tongara River Motel, 
a great friend, Ross and Pip Baker, own that. They have for years. They're the nicest people, filled with knowledge and filled with enthusiasm about where to go. And they can hook you up with a fishing guide, or you can fish the Tongariro River right there, or Lake Otamanikau, or anyway, it's 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 the dead center of the of the North Island, and it's right on the right there, uh, uh, nine iron for off the uh, Tongariro River. So mm, that's wow. one place I would plug into. And, you know, you've got the the the, the lodges and you know Port Nui okay. Station and all and Tongariro Lodge and all that kind of stuff as well. Gotcha. But for the kind this of awesome. golf guy there. Right there, and you're in and Tarangi is a, is a real historic, big time fishing town. There's a really nice couple of big fishing shops right in town, big grocery store. All this, this is on the north side. Of, this is the north side of the North Island. This is right in the dead center of the North Island, the town of okay. Tarangi. That's at the south end of Lake Taupo, the largest lake in the country, actually. That's a really cool area. So that would be if you're going to do something on the North Island, go there. And that guy, and, and they can point you, they can hook you up with a guy to get you in some water and stuff. But there's all kinds of little complications with a lot of that helicopter wire that we used to enjoy, you know, because the lodges use that. They have these high-end people come in. And uh, if you try to book a, a flight into some of these, uh, the Narrow River or the Rangitiki or stuff like that, um, they would say, well, we're booked up. We can't do that because they've already kind of got an arrangement yeah. with the fishing lodges. Like, we're not going to overdo that. That's why. Right. If you ever plan a trip like that or you want to go in there uh, over the holidays, you know, go in there before Christmas and stay in there till about New Year's, um, that would be the sneaky little window that you could actually gotcha. revisit the good old days. Um, That's awesome. Anyway, but uh, but for freedom of movement and – Yeah, you know, the South. The South where I live and, and you know, I, all the places yeah. I go, I we leave the keys in the ignition of the car. We never lock anything. The doors are wide open. There's there's laptops. There's camera equipment. There's cash, passports, whatever's really? playing around. And you don't have to even think about someone getting getting ripped off. That's a, the joy in today's world of, you know, going to New Zealand. You know what's cool about that, too, is that New Zealand, you know what I mean? It's pretty amazing because, obviously, the history go way back to how New Zealand was. Uh, well, I guess, actually, New Zealand is different. I'm thinking, uh, like, Australia, right? But New Zealand, Australia, they're, they're close by. I mean, there must be a big difference between kind of uh do you, have you been to australia is there a big oh, difference yeah, I've between fished over there i've been over there a number of times and down and down to tasmania as well um and that's most people just go there one time for that uh it's nice to go over there and play golf or something but um uh, there's really the, the, the there's no comparison fish, the aussies come over to the aussies come over to new zealand regularly to fish it's that's where they would go to fish we always refer to them as the aussie bastards and that just that's just standard because it's such a competitive thing with all the sports you know oh, rugby, right. cricket, everything and that it's an aussie ref they cheated or you know there's always that little competition between the two countries anyway <laughs> today's episode is sponsored by range meal bars Made by a small team of passionate outdoor enthusiasts, the range team only uses the highest quality gluten-free ingredients that feel good when you fuel your body with these bad boys. And I've talked about this uh, quite a bit in the past, but a good bar is always handy in my satchel. And now uh, that I've got range in, it's always great to have them on hand. I've been uh, loving the molasses ginger sea salt bar, and it's been it's been good to have this one along. This bar is about the same size as a lot of the um, the nutrition bars you see out there, but this one is a little bit different. It packs a punch with 700 calories and is a legitimate full meal replacement. A range bar is small enough to fit in your hand and slides easily into the pocket of your fly vest, a small pouch in your backpack. 
Uh, I've got this little thing where if I ever get hungry out there, I kind of get a little uh, on the edge. So I always have a little food in the pack. But if you're ever out there and you ever have a problem, you ever uh, have to miss a meal, this can help you uh, cover yourself and keep you going strong. You can check out uh, Range right now at wetflyswing.com slash range. That's R-A-N-G-E. Range meal bars. You won't go back to the normal bar. Okay, back to the show. So this is amazing. So there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot to do here, but it sounds like if somebody's planning, and could they, if they were planning a trip, I mean, are you free? Could could somebody call you to pick your brain a little bit or what, what's, how's that look? Oh yeah, I feel questions are all the time. Do you also take people? It sounds like you've got friends coming down. But- I, I'm kind of, I booked up my same buddies for life, I think, yeah. you know. Yeah, so you're, not I don't- doing, you're not doing any trip stuff like that. Oh yeah, and I, and I never, uh, actually, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, um, uh, be a guide and I wouldn't want to uh, yeah. all of a sudden spend, you know, when you're going to, if you spend a couple, a week or two with somebody, you better know them. Uh, you know, they may have some wild political tangent or something, or, you know, you know, that, uh, you know, I just, you, I yeah, has, that ever, has that ever happened to you where you, you, when you're guiding, you had somebody out there that you took and you're like, Oh man, I got two weeks of kind of this crazy guy. Uh, yeah, years ago. Oh yeah, I and uh, I, when I was actually was a guide there from in the till, till about mid eighties or late eighty five or six. I kind of I just went into photography and writing at that, about that time. I didn't do any guiding after that. I did a little. I helped out Dave uh, Brown there um, in the discovery of the um, Elk River and all that system up there. So I did that a little bit in the early nineties. You know, I just helped twenty days a year or something like that uh, for about two seasons. So other than that, I don't do any guiding at all. I, I mean, I. I've done a. I've gone up to Alaska a couple of times with friends and floated the Good News River and places like that. Um, but um, I don't. Uh, I don't want to be a guide. I don't want to have that on. You know, I'm not that. I don't need that. Um, I rather. I just the way it works is just fine. I just go fishing with friends. We just share the cost. So when people come down to New Zealand, for example, it's around about a hundred bucks a day, hundred and twenty dollars a day, maybe. That's food, gas, roof. Everything, you know, the same for me. That's about what it what it costs you. Oh, is that what it is? So it's about 120 bucks a day to, to do to basically cover all your expenses down there. Yeah, if you have a friend to share it with, and you know, and you rent little cottages, and um, you know, now this year might go up a little bit. The gas prices are gone sure. up a little, like everywhere. But yeah, I just rent a little little cottage for um, my little one of my favorite cottages. I think it's around 70. It's crazy, really. It's around seventy-five uh, doll, seventy-five kiwi a night, and anyway, so that turns into about forty-five fifty dollars U.S. Wow! And food, food is That's food. Crazy. You know, beer is beer, and all that stuff. You don't, I don't factor that cost in. That's just a given wherever you're at. Um, yep. Then you, and then if you live, and and if you have cottages and areas, or that you don't have to do a lot of driving, you, you know, a tank of gas can last all week. Yeah. Uh, you know, and wow. then you just go fish your brains out. Fish and, your brains you know, out. You could do this probably. It sounds like you could do a few weeks down there for like a few thousand bucks, and then plus your plane ticket down there, something like that. Yeah, I think yeah, you know, do it like that. But um, but again, I. I it's again. It's recommended. Uh, you know, and if you have, yeah, you know, if you if, if you can afford it, or whatever, some meet, meet some of these guys, and you might want to just hire them for a week or two every year. You know, that's what sure. that that's what they form. They form these when they meet people they really like or personality gel or whatever. They'll have the same people come back year after year, and it makes it and that makes it really easy, and that makes it easy for me too. Like when I have friends that come back every year, they've seen it all. They've seen the high water, the low water, the floods, the you know the the, the great days, the bad days. So. 
you don't ever have to, you know, in that never in that position to say, oh, well, normally it's like this, or last year it was like this, or, you know, it just makes it easy. And then you mix in some golf and have fun and dinner parties every night. Yeah. <laughs> it's my happy Sounds place. like a good trip. Oh, it's my happy. I, we don't go to restaurants. So we, you know, I don't want no, no drinking, driving going on. So we get off the river. We have we have dinner and um, you know green lip mussels or you know take the time the time to make really nice meals or whatever and it's just a great way to finish the day. But if when I have friends that are over from uh, England and Ireland especially, so they and I, they treat me well over there, so it's kind of reciprocal. Uh, they just after dinner they're putting their waiting boots on and everything and they're and they're off again because they're so into fishing at nighttime over there for sea trout and they like moonless nights and just going out there in the dark and anyway and then i don't do that um anyway and then they'll come back at you know one or two in the morning and you know you'll hear them come in there and then in the morning i'll look at their photos on their on their cell phones and they're you know kind of crappy photos you know deer in the headlight stuff but they'll catch fish they'll average maybe a pound bigger than they do in the daytime so All there's right. a there's a whole thing there with night fishing. If you yeah, want, these are to the browns, that. the the yeah. Brown. yeah. Just, well, yeah, just swing stuff in the big pools, and uh, uh, anyway, they come up with some absolutely gargantuan fish occasionally doing that. There's all sorts of yeah, so cool. And it sounds like for you're out there for months, so you must not have a uh, an old lady uh, waiting for you at the at the lodge. Are you doing this all on your own? Um, I do that on my own. I, I've uh, yeah, I've been through all that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, flat all the world. You know, I mean, it's basically when you travel and like I have um, everywhere. For my extensive research, Dave, I find that um, women um, need more than just well-written postcards or emails from faraway places for a relationship. Yeah. So that's that take that's certainly taken its toll. Yeah. Um, right. Right. All that, so you can't right. have it all to live yeah. like that. Anyway, but but I've been now I've got a partner I like, but um, but uh, anyway, so that's that's always that was the downside of of this lifestyle, you know, right? Of, uh, which you've been doing for a long time. Well, so that you know, you get offered to explore someplace or do a trip, or I could just never say no. It's like, wow, I got a free ticket to see the world and learn about stuff, and, you know. Uh, and you could always say, well, honey, this is what I do for a living, you know. But what the bottom line is, you're out there having a great time exploring the world and then somebody's staying home waiting you know for you to return right well what about what about honey you know for the alternative scenario what about honey uh you could travel the world how about we travel together and go fishing is that was that never uh on the slate for anybody well, when you when we had uh, you know when I when my wife was here, um, I'm still great friends with all of them too. I yeah. don't have I don't have bad endings at all. Um, but yeah, we had horses, we had gold retrievers. Oh, right. So you did you did do that? You had the kind well, of the family thing down. So I would take off, and you know, and and, and um, so somebody has to sit here and look after the farm, uh, yeah. our little little five acre ranch here. Um, anyway, so that we so anyway that's been kind of the downside a little bit of that. But you know, but I just yeah, you did help it. it. It was like an addiction, you know, to just travel everywhere. Um, so yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. And I asked that just because, you know, it's funny because we, we have, <laughs> with, uh, you know, Megan, uh, you know, my partner, she's, uh, you know, we have a counselor that we see regularly just because it, it helps us, you know, and it's like, you know, I mean, that's one of the things he mentioned just yesterday. He was like, you know what? It's all about everybody is on 
on the search for something, whether that's like a new island of fish, you know, a new something. You're always on the, the journey is what everybody regards. So it's no, yeah, it's instinctive. Right? Always, it's instinctive in a way. We always seem to want more. You know, everybody wants yeah. a little bit more of something. Exactly. Like like you had it all. You've had you've done New Zealand for 40 years. You've done BC. You've done all this world travel. You kind of sounds like you know about everybody, but you still feel like you want to keep traveling. As it sounds like. Well, yeah. I mean, I. I mean, I. You know, um, I love what I do. I mean, I still have that fantasy. I like to stay home more and get another golden retriever. But uh, the bottom line is, I can't say no to go to. I can't imagine not spending the winter in New Zealand. That's just addictive. But when I'm home, you know, I'm always thinking of that. I'm 71 now, so I mean, um, I ride a bicycle uh, a lot every day. Uh, you know, and I I swim. I do a swim workout practically every morning i have a rowing machine in front of the television set so i'm watching uh, golf on the weekends or cnn or uh-huh. whatever it is you know i'm on a rowing machine you know and um so i mean i really have to work on the fitness because i want to hike up down these rivers as long yeah. as i can um so it takes a lot of fitness and um yep. i mean let's don't take it let's don't get too crazy i tell people i say listen i'm with with diet and nutrition and lots of tons of exercise and workout i'm a complete health nut until about five o'clock right um, anyway and then have a few <laughs> have a That's few right. beers yeah, you can't, oh. you can't, you can't be too crazy because then life isn't, you know, you don't, you yeah. lose. Yeah. So you're a health nut. You keep, that's amazing. Cause you're, you know, seven in your early seventies and, and you look yeah. at this as you look out, you could just, you plan on New Zealand for pretty much until you can't, you know, get up there anymore. Is that the plan? Until that last cast. Um, yeah. So I think I'm good for maybe another decade. You know, yeah. who knows? Yeah, another decade. And then BC is your place. So eventually, I know your answer to this question, BC versus New Zealand, it would be New Zealand. But, you know, as you get, as you think about kind of, you know, settling down for the long term, as you get older, it's more like BC is where you'll be. Oh, yeah, that, this will be always my home, but um, I'll, I'll go to New Zealand as, as long as I can. Um, but, um, you know, and BC, um, the lake fishing will be, you know, I, 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 get, I bought these new little wooden prams made for visiting friends and stuff to use and i have a nice boat but i mean i, I my joke is i'm you know i'm practicing for the golden years yeah, so um you know exactly. so you go to the lake and you know you just see it all the time you know the these old timers they put their boats in at the, some fishing lake and you always know, say oh can I, can I give you a hand and nope they've got their system they have a little yep. motorized crank thing and the boat comes down and That's you know it. and uh so it lends itself to that, you know, those to late years of fishing. Lake fishing is kind of actually kind of fun. I'm kind of yeah, it is. En- enjoying it. I'll never be a coronamid fisherman, I don't think. I right. do a little bit of that. Yeah, but no bobbers, no bobbers for you. I, it just bores me to tears to stare at that, especially when there's <laughs> all kinds of birds and, you know, flying around. And there's always a bird show in the springtime with eagles and ospreys and balloons. Yeah. And so moose, I, I like moose to do crossing that. the lake. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so I've been kind of. Going back to the Lukenbach, Texas approach, I just when I when I fish lakes, just like yesterday, I like a floating line, a long leader, and a nice weighted fuzzy fly, and that doesn't make too much difference. The crotomid hatches are over pretty much in the fall, um, so the fish are just in there cruising, fattening up on whatever they can find. So I just blast it out there. Let the fly sink a little bit. Have a pull off the beer can or whatever. I bite yeah. your sandwich, and Kick then just back, pull fall in. asleep, fall asleep in the boat. You fall, you could, and then just and then just pull it in you know, three, four, five inch little strips, and you get those wonderful big takes, um, and that seems to be work as well as anything. Um, so anyway, yeah. so I like that. What is the uh, what is the I can't leave this the Lukenbach Texas. I know that's a song. Well, what's the I missed that analogy. What is the Lukenbach Texas? 
Oh, just like back to the old times, you know, the, before Luckenbach means going oh, back. Oh, right. Yeah. Go back. Luckenbach, Texas. Yeah. Back. That's well, a now, Is that Willie? Is that Willie's song or Waylon? Uh, that was uh, Willie and Waylon, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 We'll put yeah, a, uh, I'm always on the music, so I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah. That was on their Outlaw album, actually. Yeah. That was a great one. Luckenbach, Texas. Yeah. That was a big album. I was on Fall oh, 76. I love that album. That was the, the That was 76. So you remember when that album came out? Yeah, I was, at, I was on Fall River, and uh, oh, a friend of mine played the hell wow. out of that. Um, was that when Willie? Was that when Willie? He must have came. That's when he went back to Texas, right? And that was the whole thing: is that he actually started playing his own stuff back then. Yeah, he, after he, he tried he, Nashville. Yeah, Nashville. He couldn't quite fit in. They couldn't nope. fit him into a genre. He was a great songwriter always, but um, yep. for his style of, of playing, um, they had to kind of go to Texas and reinvent the whole thing there. Um, yeah, Tom Paul Glazer and uh, Jesse Coulter. That was the four of them on that album. Amazing. Not that I'm some music freak, but no, I just no, it's great though. I, I remember I, I, that one in particular. I'll have Dom throw that in in the show notes for people to listen to. Oh, yeah. I love, I well, love that. Just like, you know, music goes with fishing so well. And when I first went up and started guiding for a year up, up in the, the Skeena Rivers, the Kispiox, the Bulkley, all that, uh, back in the, about mid-86, I think, um, that's when um, the um, Heart of Rock and Roll came out. Oh, yeah, Huey Lewis. Yeah, Huey Lewis, who's actually yep. a friend of mine. I send him a calendar every year and some flops. Oh, really? You know, you know Huey? That's right. He's a fisherman, too, right? He, yeah, he lives in but near in Montana there, um, and um, so but I would listen to hard to rock and roll. You know, I had my Dodge van at the time there, and you know we'd be driving out in the morning, and the glove box would flip down, and you put the vice right on. It was a perfect height. So oh, perfect. Whoever's in the passenger seat would be tying flies. Tying flies. And then we'd be listening to hard to rock and roll at full <laughs> blast. Um, All right, we'll, we'll throw that one in the show notes too, because that's a classic <laughs> as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Different genre. You got the old school outlaw country, and then you got Healy, the the pop of the '80s, right? Oh yeah, you kind of just you know you can kind of look at your life by music. And that's just another way to time your life or measure yeah, it is. music you listen to. It is at the time anyway. That's cool. Nice. Well, I love the tangent. We always love a good tangent, so we've we've gone down one here, and uh, <laughs> but it's just getting you know a feel for you know real you. I mean, it's interesting because I didn't know your history, and this is what I love about you know kind of the podcasting is hearing you know these stories that you're talking about, and I I wanted to give people a picture of New Zealand, especially you know if they were gonna want to do this because it is it's one of those bucket list places, and it sounds like it's actually a pretty doable trip. It sounds like you're saying that people you don't have to spend ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars to do a lodge to actually go do a cool trip there no but i mean but if you're an older person or something and, and you have lots of money and you're going to take your wife uh who's maybe not too outdoorsy or something the lodges are really perfect i mean they cost uh, you know an arm and leg for most of most people but if you can afford that why not i mean you yeah. know that's some people like that. They like to make idle chit chat with some fat guy from tech, Texas and a surgically enhanced wife afterwards. Exactly. What would David? What would be one if you had to say one good lodge? If somebody did have plenty of money and they wanted to hit a lodge up, what would you recommend? Oh, I probably would say I'd go to Cedar Lodge, maybe on the South Island. That's pretty wild down there. Okay. Um, they fly into some really remote spots in there. That's a that's a really good one. Uh, and on the North Island, uh, Poor Nui is really quite famous, and and they just it's a deluxe everything. Um, that's uh, out north of Tapo, northeast of Tapo, a little bit. That would be a good choice. Um, uh, probably. And um, how do you spell that? How do you spell that? Poor Poor Nui's. P O R N O. I, Poor Nui Station. Yeah. You'll find oh, that. Oh, Nui, yeah, yeah, Station. Yeah, yeah. Poor Nui Station. That would be probably one of the more deluxe ones. Okay, and, um, awesome. But um, but anyway, but the, 
it's easy to kind of do it. And that's what's kind of the difference between fishing in Argentina and down that way. You know, those Argentina, I love fishing down there. I've had wonderful experiences, but it doesn't lend itself to, to do it on your own. Uh, there's, there's a lot of touchy stuff down there a little bit, right. um, you know, and, and also the idea that you, you want to stop with your friends to, you know, have lunch Hang or out. dinner or someplace at some restaurant, you got to pay some kid or somebody to watch your car so it doesn't get ripped off while oh, you're wow. eating. Or if you're at the, some kiosk at an airport, you know, you want to bolt your camera case to your ankle if you're reading no a magazine kidding. or something. So that sort of thing down there. So that I know it's a, a terrible generalization, but yeah. I, yeah. and the analogy that I use too is what you sometimes from experiences down there. Um, you know, it's a different mindset. So the so you get there, the, the taxi cab driver in Buenos Aires rips you off. You know, charge over charges you. You haven't got you're sorted out how what how much money is. You all of a sudden you realize you paid them fifty bucks instead of five yep. bucks for a cab ride. Um, that sort of thing. And then the guy just goes to you know the confession on Friday and says, Father, you know, I ripped off the tourist. I, <laughs> I, I had sex with my brother's wife and I did whatever I did. And, right. and then, they, then the priest just says, well, listen, I want you to, to say 25 Hail Marys, do 25 push-ups, and give me 25 U.S. dollars. And the bubble's <laughs> back to zero. You're, you're okay again. You know, <laughs> wow. so that's that set. That, that Anyway, so I don't like that at all. New no. Zealand is completely opposite. <laughs> you know, anyway. Wow. That is funny. That no, that is that is crazy. But that's I mean, kind of the truth. I mean, that's a yeah. general. So you're saying New Zealand, like you said, New Zealand is one of those places that we all love, where you can, you know, and there's not many left, but where you can go and leave your stuff unlocked, and and you're not have you don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, I mean, you, and if you're in the big cities and stuff, you'd use normal caution. But out there in the fishing country, you know, there's no hit. You don't hear about that kind of stuff at all. Um, so it just, it, it's just, it's that, that's re, so rejuvenating and it's very civil too. So if you come, if you want to fish on some river, uh, you, you know, you kind of plan it out and you park at some bridge or whatever, and you're going to access the water. If you have to go across private property or something, you always want to ask permission. Yeah. Very civil down there. But then, but anyway, but mostly we have all these regular beats that are well-established. Uh, you park your car there and then you put a little sign on your windshield on the inside there and said, you know, two people fishing upstream or two feet or two people people fishing downstream up to the car you know so mm. when somebody goes there That's they say oh cool. somebody's here and then all of a sudden because you don't want to fish behind somebody or you're going to no. possibly avoid it so anyway so it's just a real so then you just drive upstream a couple miles so you make sure they have enough water there anyway so generally you fish all day uh, the idea and not see anybody else um, so that's and and also you know, say with British Columbia and New Zealand, I'll go the whole season everywhere. I'll never see a single no trespassing sign ever anywhere. That would be considered poor taste in New Zealand, yeah. actually, to wow. do that. And then that's of course amazing. you go to Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming, especially or Colorado's the yeah. worst. Oh yeah, uh, you, it's just a nightmare. Where if you what bank you can wait on, you can't. Where you can stop, uh, forget it. You know. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Wow. Well, you're painting a, a really cool picture, even better than I was thinking about the place. You know, you hear a lot about New Zealand, and uh, and it is really cool to hear the, this opportunity. So, well, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I want to get into your calendar just to you know plug. Well, let's start with the calendar real quick, and then we'll get into some of the fishing in a sec. But um, sure, talk about your calendar. So you got this great calendar. I've got two of them up on my wall that you sent me that are these amazing, beautiful pictures, fly yeah. fishing calendars. Um, well, well, where I can somebody pick one of these up? Well, they get a hold of me directly, or the number of fly shops carry them. So uh, just to have people email me, David Lambron at telus.net. Uh, I do most of my shipping to the U.S. and Europe out of Bozeman in the summer because the ship, the price of postage is so cheap. Okay. Uh, 
up here in Canada, it's really expensive. Uh, but we have a strong middle class that are well looked after. <laughs> That's why yeah. I look right. <laughs> happy country. Uh, but um, anyway, I'm down in my last box or two. But the calendar, I've been doing it 35 years, actually. I just finished my 30 sixth uh edition that'll just go to get the publisher this winter but no kidding 2023 is when i flog in now but basically i just kind of i try and cram as much information in there as i can about the people the places the fly patterns and it's all kind of time sensitive so if it's if the if the pictures are uh december january february like that it might be argentina or new zealand or something like that and then may will be either maybe chalk strings of england i love going there a little bit uh, or uh, BC lake fishing or whatever. July, uh, June, July will be uh, probably uh, Iceland for flying salmon or Montana, Idaho, like that. Fall fishing, get September, August, the Dean River, September, the Skeena country, uh, mm -hmm. you know, October, maybe fall lake fishing. So each, it kind of goes with each month. And also I make a point, I never use the word I or me in the in the page text. I, you know, I like to be more of an editor about it. Um, and I, and I get a couple photos sometimes from John Jurasek or a few places just to, to make it a little bit more interesting and more varied, um, you know, rather than just my, my favorite places. And, um, anyway, so I, that's how it kind of works. And anyway, I, I, uh, sell those to shops, but also when I do speaking engagements, you know, what'll happen is after the, after the show, and they see all these images. Um, people come up to me and they'll talk to me. And, and anyway, I'll say, "Well, so I, I, they, they'll ask, they'll ask about the calendar." So half my business now are just selling privately to either singles to individuals, or people will say, "I need five or six for my buddies," or "I'll take a dozen every year for my customers," or whatever. So uh, half the sales are private, and half would be to, probably to fly shops and a few small bookstores. Um, so that, so it kind of padded my bets there a little bit. So when all those number of fly shops crashed there in 2008 or whatever, you know, so the never dropped, I think two thirds of them went out of business probably. Oh, really? Of, of the shops you were selling to or the places? Well, I used to have a zillion. There used to be a lot more fly shops than there are now. Oh, no kidding. There, there was a big draw. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. No, it crashed with the economy. And uh, when the stock market went down. Oh, I the think, 2008. Yeah, they yeah, crashed. That, yeah. That, that really put the sweet. So all the people who are kind of on the margins there paying rent in a little shop, you know, they got kind of eaten up by the big shop. So yeah, I yeah. still sell about the same number, but I sell more to, you know, the fly shop in Redding, California, for example. Or, yeah. Gotcha. Or Catch Magazine sells a bunch of calendars. Yeah, Catch. When did the calendar become like your main, when did you switch to the calendar becoming kind of your main, uh, you know, the revenue coming in from the fly fishing? Oh, stuff? that would have been um, right there around uh, nine, probably took over completely there in the early 90s, probably. Yeah, early 90s. Wow. So you've yeah, been doing that. I mean, so I did it. I did while I was guiding as well a little bit, but yeah, that oh, yeah. Just, it turned into something bigger, uh, big enough at that time. And you must have, um, did you start in the early nineties? Did you have a photography background before you got going on that? Yeah, I took one class a photography class at San Jose state when I was going to college and I just, it was a, I just aced it. I mean, I just it somehow just clicked with me and a lot of it's just having your eye, you know I mean? It's not, yeah. All yeah. the equipment today, all, every camera out there takes great photos. Even even now, you can use cell phone. And, I, and I've got in the latest calendar here. I've got and I use a drone sometimes for some photos. And even though the 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 lens and the sensor are the size of your little fingernail, 
that the quality, it just blows your doors off. There's some shots in this latest calendar that uh, was taken on the Clackamas River. A, a difficult shot, shooting into a morning sunrise. Um, and it was taken with, with a friend who took it with an iPhone 13. It's as sharp and as colorful and perfect, anything in the whole in the whole calendar right. and it was taken with a cell phone. I mean, exactly. you know, so, so that's, that's what it's come. That's what it's come down to. So and now are you at that level where you're also using a cell phone out there? I don't, I still use, I, I still like using my little mirrorless Fuji cameras. I like, those are my favorite ones. Um, but um, I have a cell phone with me and uh, I, I have taken it and certainly I take fly shots with, that are just stuff you want real quick little things there yeah. um, and they work out just fine for calendar pictures and all kinds of stuff it's so handy but uh, normally i like a little uh fuji xe3 actually um with a little zoom lens on it because when you hike up and down rivers it's nice not to carry a big load of stuff i don't want to weigh myself down so i put that in a little waste pack and and uh, if i crossing a river and it's looking a little dicey i just put in a plastic bag give it a twist and you know so i can go down for a minute or two if i had to, if it happened doesn't but uh it wouldn't drown the camera so and these little cameras don't cost a lot the quality is just superb um you know so just by buying an expensive camera isn't going to guarantee great photos a lot of people that what you, i tell people the manual is your friend read the camera manual a lot of people will say oh i can't get my camera to take very good shots what's going on and i say well have you tried reading the manual you know <laughs> they go oh i oh i can't it's too complicated or whatever so anyway like and a friend of mine in england there charles jardine he's kind of oh yeah yeah, Charles Cerny. Yeah, we've had Charles on the podcast. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's kind of a flaky artist, but he's a really yep. good person. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, he keeps buying cameras, and then he'd get a hold of me and say, I, I, "What do I? How do I do the settings?" And I give him the whole settings. You know how just how to lay it out there, and you know he thanks me, but it never seems to end up in the final product. So then he buys another camera because he thinks that's going right. to be the magic bullet to make him. He, sh yeah, he yeah. should have the best set of stock stream photos on the planet. And he's a great artist. He's certainly great with a, he has an eye for it because he's an artist, but he has a role. just like I would be with trigonometry or geometry or something, a little bit of a mental block, not something. Right. So it doesn't seem to work out, but it's yeah. just it being, having a good eye for things and yeah. being creative. Gotcha. Um, so this is good, and 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 the photography, you know, well, maybe if we have a little bit of time at the end, we might jump into a couple tips here on that. But I did want to touch just uh, on the fishing, you know. So we talked all the travel, getting there. So the rainbows there and the fishing. Talk about that a little bit. So if you're planning on going there, what you know, what sort of gear, what sort of hatches, what's all that look like as far? Is it pretty standard around the country? Or is it super diverse like it is in the U.S.? Um, no, I think it's pretty standard actually. Um, mostly. Um, you fish the whole season with a floating line. I mean, if you fish some lakes or some different river mouths or something, you might put on a something that sinks, but we don't really do much of that. Uh, mostly it's all just hiking up a river, looking for fish. Um, and sometimes you fish blind. Sometimes they're a little small stream. You might fish blind because by the time you got close enough in there to look into the pool, you probably, they would feel your footsteps or see you or something. So it's easier just to chuck in some blind shots in there. Uh, or I'll be with a friend, would be looking for fish. I'll say, here, I say, fish, fish that area blind. Stay loose, champ. You know, just, you know, keep getting, stay in the, in the casting orbit. Um, yeah. Anyway, and all of a sudden you get a surprise. But mostly you're looking for fish and you fish for sighted fish and once you do lots of that it's just such, a, such an addiction to be casting to fish that you're that you see and you're looking at their reaction yeah. uh, and how to do that um, gotcha. and you're casting dry flies to these fish mostly 
Um, half and half. Um, I always say when I write something or trying to hook somebody into a joke or something, I say, I say people who fish nymphs are just a bunch of losers. Um, and I'm a loser <laughs> about, I'm a loser about 45% of the time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, but mostly the fishing that I'm doing around New Zealand, around the South Island there, um, I'm fishing flies that are, you know, 12 to 16, mostly 14, 16 tries or nymphs. Um, and I'm using a, a log leader and, um, uh, so I use a little bit of an indicator uh, on the uh, on the nymph sometimes, and the best indicator in the world, actually, I find, is when you go through customs or you go to a liquor store, and they put those little stretchy little uh, plastic um, sheaths around the bottles so they don't break, or you buy an oh, Asian okay. you buy an Asian pear in a grocery store, they're packed in these little white netting things. So I grab those things like crazy, and I have a lifetime supply. I just keep giving them out. But when I fish a small nymph, I'll just rip off a little piece of that stuff and make a little simple loop right on the tippet somewhere in there, depending on the size of the nymph, whatever, and use that as and trim it down small. It just looks like a little white, little fluffy nothing coming down, a little, you know, like a seed pod. And then when as soon as you hook a fish, it just disappears. And then when I want to go back to fishing a dry, I just, you know, and our little joke is when you have someone there to listen to hear you in earshot, I take the tippet, I just give a little stretch and the thing just explodes right off. I always say nymphs are for losers and I click it off and it's gone, you know, and it's just so minute. You wouldn't, it's not really polluting anything. Anyway, so it's a great way to go from a dry fly to a to a nymph back and forth really quickly without retying stuff or t doing tricky knots or putting corkies in all that crap. So anyway, so you go back and forth, and um, so if I go up uh, fishing with a friend on uh, with a river, well, you should have one rod set up for a dry that just stays with the dry the whole time, and then I'll have. Uh, an indicator and a nymph rig up. And when I do that, what I sometimes do when it's going to be a permanent all-day kind of deal, I, I tell you, it's like a, a number 12 dry fly hook. And I just fill the whole thing up like a, a bi-visible or something. The whole thing is just solid grizzly hackle. And then I'll and then I'll tie two or three feet of, of three or four, something like that, tip it on the bend of that hook. So that'll just be the all-day, you know, like here, he did some fish aren't going to look up, you know, or they're just not, they're sitting yeah. too deep or something. You give them a dry fly shot first. And then if gotcha. that doesn't get a result, then Come you say, in. okay, I'll, I'll say, okay, stand back punk. I'm sending in the probe, you know, and I'll put yeah. in the, a, a weighted nymph or something and right. fish like that. So that's kind of a good way to do it. Yeah. So you're not fishing. Like, are you fishing? Are there some big hatches where you're specifically kind of matching the hatch there? Yeah, there are actually. And that's, a, and that's a, the fishing that I gravitate to are those big Southland rivers, uh, that Matara drainage is one of the best for it. It's 150 miles long and all kinds of tributaries that come into it. And there's caddis and mayfly hatches and spinner falls. And, you know, that's my preferred approach. Oh, okay. Is that on the, what's that a part of the South Island? Is that on the South side? Uh, that's on the South end of the South Island. They have, that's the best for big hatches and they're kind of low gradient rivers. Um, so there's, you know, they got riffles between the pools a little bit, but they're, you know, small rock, easy to negotiate, great for getting older, growing older with. Um, but they have mayfly and caddis hatches where um, the bigger rivers would have more cicadas or stonefly nymphs or bigger boulders right. and things like that. But for but for matching the hatch. So I fish a high percentage of the season, uh, even though the fish are, four, five, six, seven pounds or whatever, I'll fish a four-weight rod, a, a nice Winston four-weight, actually. Yeah. Um, 
And because you're fishing a 5X tippet, unless there's a bunch of wind or something, the big valleys or whatever, I'll fish a 5 or 6 weight because there's often breezy and wind. But on these smaller streams or days where there's no breeze at all, the weakest link in your whole system is a 5X tippet. So you can put enough pressure to break a 5X tippet easily with a 4-weight rod. So it's really no point in fishing a heavier rod. Uh, you know, when you're fishing 16s and 14s and small flies and, you know, a nice long leader. And often we'll also usually dye. I usually, all, all of color lines are pretty good. Um, but um, we usually take it one step further and we dye the first 10 or 12 feet of it. And you throw that out there in the river and it just disappears. That, I learned that from Tony Atwessel years ago. And it, even though they would still see that, you know, that line, whatever, it just looks like the normal craft that floats down rivers all day yeah. long. Right. And, remember, and when fish, when people talk about fly line color, they say, well, you look up in the sky, the sky is blue. Why not use a blue fly line? Well, it doesn't really work that way. The fish only sees the cone of vision depends on the depth that he's at. And he, and above that, he shouldn't be looking at fly lines at all. It should just be your leader or tippet, really. But when they look at lines in the river, you know, if they look at the water in the river away from on all sides of them, they're looking at a reflection of the bottom. So they're looking at the top of the river and they're seeing the color of the bottom. So that's where that off making that color, that line disappear. Um, and I've seen it where on back channels where, you know, you're, years ago playing with some fish and all of a sudden he gets nervous you know and he all of a sudden he wants to get out of that back channel and go back to the main river you can throw down a, a, a 444 lime green Cortland liner at the time yeah. across the outlet there and it's like a gate and they won't swim underneath it they'll go up to it and freak out and run back huh. but um, anyway so they they really pick up on that so why not just yeah. and I use that same thing everywhere I do I have the same lines everywhere I fish they don't they, for photos a lot of times it's nice to have a smooth all of the whole line, one the same color, and basically oh, gotcha. that's that's probably as good as anything. You know, if you get those, the, you know, that and most of the fly line companies, I've talked to them all and dealt with Simon Godsworth and visited, um, you know, Garth Jones there at Airflow in in the Wales fishing over there about colors of lines and stuff. They understand that. So most of them now, their main lines are you know usually um, kind of uh, olive green. Yeah, and uh, they still you can still see them nicely, but it's a good it's a good uh, combination of being able to see your line well, when to mend and whatever, and and also not bother the fish too much. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, putting together remote Alaskan wilderness trips. This is your full scale uh, wilderness trip, float trip, where you're going to be on the river for multi days, camping, uh, fishing, uh, hanging out on the boat, beverages, good food. Um, it's pretty much got it all. It's Alaska, so you got a chance to see a bear, have an encounter with some other wildlife, uh, maybe a moose. You never know what you're going to see up in Alaska. Plus, the rainbow fishing and uh, the salmon fishing and everything uh, everything else they have up there is pretty much uh, about as epic as it gets. We've had a couple of episodes with Fishhound now, and they've talked about the passion and where this comes from. Adam is doing some good stuff out there to try and do his best to protect the species we love. So if you get a chance, you can support a great local company at Fishhound in this podcast in one convenient spot. That's wetflyswing.com slash fishhound right now, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-D. And, uh, and this is the best chance for you to put together that trip of a lifetime and, uh, and get some of those giant Alaskan rainbows. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to check out Fishhound.
Well, just going, taking us back to New Zealand again. So the travel, everything we've talked about, if we were setting somebody up for like, say, a DIY type trip, is there anything uh-huh. else you would, you would offer them for uh, tips or information before, you know, setting things up? Uh, well, I'd probably say go now, go before anything changes or before you get too old to hike up some of these rivers. Um, hire a guide for a couple of days, you know, split it with your buddy there and learn the whole tricks. Um, and then you'll get some information, you know, about where to go. And also a lot of the rivers are well known. You can, you know, find so much on the Googling business. The flight patterns are pretty simple. Um, hair, you know, hair and copper. You know, you'll see all these yep. on my Instagram postings, you know, all the fly patterns, a little rubber spider, a little terrestrial thing um, that works. That's like a universal killer globally uh, everywhere in the chalk streams, smartest in England, smartest Browns in New Zealand, everywhere, everybody. They love that little a little size 16 or a 14 little foam spider with little rubber legs uh, that says bug to them. And what that's, what's nice about when you're of a, as a fly tire, not only when you're watching the fish there, you, you see, you, you see a couple of things, how far away they will see the fly and also, and, and how quickly they'll, they'll, zone in on it and, and move to it. So if it's a little cruddy thing that looks like nothing, they might look, go up and have a little look at it or whatever, but when they see rubber legs or certain things like that, uh, usually it's like a cruise missile, you know, in there. Also, here's the other trick. When you see a fish in the river, you know, a nice approachable fish, uh, don't don't try for that miracle cast right um perfect you know three feet in front of it or whatever yep. throw to the side you can measure you measure your cast so you don't overshoot it off to the side so start a, f- 10 feet away and then and I'll, and I'll, I'll be with a friend there i'll say okay add two feet to that two feet okay now move it over a couple feet two more feet to the right so you kind of fish your way into the fish rather than make them try to get that perfect cast right off the bat. And also, if you get them to come over a little bit to take it, you usually get better hookups because they're taking it and returning back to their position. So you get a better you get a better hookup. Um, anyway, so you can fish your way in there, and also you've got a measured amount of line off the reel. So you don't have to guess how, how far to cast, or all of a sudden you have extra line, and one cast, you hit it just right, and it goes an extra 10 feet further than you wanted. Then that's what upsets them, you know, so. Uh, right, right. So when you make that cast, I mean, is it good if you can, you know, where that fish is to make it? You're saying, yeah, don't put it on top, but you try to put it in that exact spot, or what you're saying is you kind of work it towards it? I kind of fish my way into the into the fish a little bit. Uh, that and but when you're fishing, um, the same thing with a dry or or a nymph. You know, don't just try and make that perfect cast. Uh, and then also, but if you're fishing, say a big cicada or a big rough pattern like that, that happens later in the summer, they're like grasshopper size things. Uh, you what you might do then is sometimes is, is pop that fly. Uh, two feet or so right behind the fish, they feel that. And all of a sudden they turn around and they'll get it. You know, so that's another approach if you're fishing a very large fly. But when a fish comes downstream and he opens his mouth, you're looking right down the mouth. You see the gill rakers, everything. Uh, That's the time that you really have to hold off on striking. They don't spit the fly, especially the bigger the fish, the longer they hold it. I mean, you know, the old thing there, they, they say when a fish takes your fly, you dry fly, you say, God save the queen before yeah. you lift up. That's what the, the old history. That's what they say. Yeah. So anyway, when the fish takes it facing you, you got to really say, God save the queen in slow motion because you're pulling it directly out of their mouth when you lift up the hook. And here's another tip, fishing everywhere that nobody gets, and it's, it's 
just makes a huge difference. So when you watch people, no matter where you're fishing, and they're and a, the flies coming down there, whatever, and they a fish takes it and they lift straight up. So all they're doing there, and that's just standard. That's the way 98% of the people do it. Yeah. And if all you're doing is you're picking up a lot of the loose line on the in the currents there, and all of a sudden it goes from zero to full on tight instantly. The same way if you want to break a string, you would you know snap it. You oh, would yeah. pull slowly. Yeah. So what you what I've learned over the years, the best way to strike fish is side strike them. So, and here's a great way to, and that works especially well with when you're, if you're nip fishing with an indicator. So you chuck it out there and you got your little fuzzball or whatever coming down there and all of a sudden it goes down or whatever. Anyway, and you lift up, you've already got a little bit of a tape delay, I call it, because it, you know, there's been a, re, a slight delay between the fish taking the fly and the reaction of the indicator Indica with a weighted nip. It's a little bit quicker than unweighted. Um, anyway, but you lift up and then you maybe lose a few of them. But if you just go out there playing in the river, throw out there and pretend you had a strike and just go to the side. And even though your line is, you know, wandering in the currents a little bit, that indicator moves instantly. And also you can hit it hard because that it, it takes a shock out of it because you've got a little bit of bend in the line there. So even though you make that fly and that thing move instantly, it takes the shock out of just going straight up with it. Mm. So side striking. And if you're a right-handed person, no matter what side of the river you're fishing on, it's always to the right. And if you're a left-handed person, no matter what side of the river you're fishing on, you go to the left. Hmm. So you don't go across your body. That just that you lose a little bit there. So side striking and and it's hard to train yourself. So when you're on some river like the Elk River or the Madison or someplace where you hit these little pods of, you know, whitefish, you know, they like to congregate together often when you hit those little things. Usually you just walk away and you're looking for the trout. Stay with it. Put an indicator on and put a weighted little flashback caddis or something and just catch fish after fish. Rock Creek is loaded with them, too. Yeah. And, you just, Creek, and right. you, you just pattern yourself to strike like that. And um, anyway, you'll do a lot better. And you'll break okay. fewer fish off. That's a good tip. Well, what's the uh, um, size, again, size-wise, if you look at the fish there? I mean, what is a, I mean, there's probably, it's all over the board, but what is a, a nice fish in, in New Zealand? What, what would be a trophy average well, I think I think overall they act just like the brochures say they average four pounds. Um, so that'd be an, an average fish. You'll get some bigger and some smaller. Um, and certain rivers like the Matara drainage and all that, you know, they get a lot of two to three pound fish. Um, that those are fine. I, I'm happy with that. So these are like four pound or what's that? That's like inch wise. How, how what would that be? Oh, that'd be twenty uh, twenty two inches probably. Yeah, could be twenty if it was fat. Um, anyway, so that. That's pretty standard, and it doesn't. And you get the same size out of small rivers as you do out of big rivers. Hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it, I mean, super small rivers, you probably wouldn't get more fish over five pounds. But most small streams would have, you know, five to eight, seven, eight pound fish in them yeah. somewhere. And uh, the big streams certainly would have a lot of those, and maybe a few bigger ones. Gotcha. And pressure-wise, on the on when you're up there, you get some pressure, but do you? A lot of times, you're not seeing too many people out there fishing. I don't. Where I go fishing, I don't see hardly anybody ever. Um, and I've had friends come over and fish from Europe, and they just blows their doors off. Not only can you fish anywhere you like, um, you don't run into anybody. You know, I mean, they're just they, it's just unbelievable. You know, if you're fishing Europe and stuff, it's complicated. You've got to book this, do this, pay this. Right. Um, 
join a club or you know whatever and it, it's understandable i mean the population density of the uk is around 22 times per square mile as it is here in british columbia so uh without that you just have a bunch of people fishing for coarse fish and you know kind of sloppy places so that they have to have clubs there you know yeah, and all that the club. yeah well, what's the um i was just looking over you know i guess the south island here but is there a fly shop i know there's a bunch of fly shops there but are there there's some good ones you'd recommend that people could check in with or any areas you'd um, like well there's a new zealand fly shop in methven um that's about two hour drive from an hour and a half drive from christchurch that's one of the bigger distributors but they've got a good website and they're oh okay. yeah Get on that, and you'll get a lot of information off of that. Um, and then on the South Island, though, um, there's really not – well, in, in Christchurch, Fisherman's Loft uh, is one of them. That's, there's a couple of stores there. But I'd say generally most of the little shops around the South Island, when you go in there, um, they'll have uh, some fishing stuff. They'll have some golf stuff. They'll have some you know, basket, you know, sporting equipment. They're, they're not, uh, there's not enough business there year-round for just straight fly shops. Um, yeah, but gotcha. you can, you want to, and also you want to usually cost a little bit more down there. Uh, so you want to go there prepared, you know, you can leave the U S Northern North American shores all set to go where you really yeah, won't need anything unless right. you lose something or, you know, break something. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. If you needed it, you could get it. Okay, cool. Well, this is, this is good. I think, uh, we have a good taste of a uh, flavor of New Zealand, and it's uh, definitely cool to hear that it's it's kind of doable. Maybe we could take us out. We talked about the photo, you know, a little bit on your, you know, on the calendar. How does that for you? Is that challenging, or do you just have a bazillion photos in well, your log? Well, no, yeah. I've lived off my files for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, I mean, I have a lot of photos. I mean, I, I've got a ton I can draw upon. But you're always, you know, getting better, looking for new, you know, new stuff coming up. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I take photos year round somewhere, you know, wherever I'm at. I just love doing that. Um, anyway, so that's just a slow building of files. And as I mentioned, I think I talked to you earlier, here's a great tip for people. Young young kids are trying to get into the fishing thing or sell yeah. photos to magazines, which is pretty hard to do now because everybody's everyone's a photographer. You know, with digital photography, we, it's like free film for everybody. Yeah. Um, so, but I just, here's how I do my um, I don't. I used to have a, a website years ago, and you know it didn't really pay off. You had to have somebody make it up, and it was hard to adjust it, and want to add new things to it, and you know it, it cost a, a monthly fee and all that stuff. So I just dropped all that. Um, so I just I use my Instagram uh, as my website. So every time I post a picture, I number it. I, I, you know this is number five hundred, or I think I had about six or seven hundred on there now, or I can't remember. Um, <clears throat> that would some editor gets a hold of me or art director or somebody. They're they're looking for some photos to illustrate something or a cover or whatever. I'll say just go to my Instagram account and just scroll through there, and you'll see all my favorite shots. Um, and they're all numbered, and there's usually a description like you know some river or some South Islander cutthroat stream in BC Rockies or whatever it is. Iceland or something, so they can see it, they'll number it, and they'll say, "Okay, I'd like, uh, I want you to send me, you know, three nineteen seventy seven, five oh one, and sixty six, or whatever." And I just go there and just, and then I just send them a week by we transfer the full res file, uh, so they can do all the editing, whatever you know, they have all the resolution they could possibly ask for. Um, so using your Instagram account as a website, and also 
what I also do is I don't hashtag the hell out of it. You'll see people that will put all the, they want to build as many uh, you know, following as possible, and that's understandable. But they'll have 10 or 15 companies that they'll list or whatever to ha- they'll hashtag it up. Um, I don't do that at all. I just, you know, I've done a little of that the odd time, but I just put my name down. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to build up a, I don't want to big, uh, exp, uh, expose those photos as mo- to too much. I like a little test group, you know, friends that people know me, my editors, whatever. So that doesn't get, those photos don't get overexposed too much. And then, um, it's just handy. Uh, it, it, they just, it runs itself. It's free. I add to it probably every Saturday I put a photo down or something with a little caption. And, uh, then I do the same thing on Facebook, but, uh, I really like Instagram. You know, there's no political, stuff in there. Um, no, I, I like that. I don't know how it all worked. I'm sure for some people it is, but I never, I never get stuff. I never block people. I never, it's all real friendly. Um, or Facebook is a little bit of a bloodbath at times. Oh, is it? Yeah. Facebook. Well, yeah. People chirp in all kinds of stuff and, yeah, yeah. and I'm pretty, and I'm guilty as well, you know, yeah, so Instagram is perfect for you because yeah, obviously the photos and so you yeah. get most of your, so with the, the photography and the, uh, I mean the calendar, so it's all about the calendar. I mean, you're, you're selling that. Is it most of you, are you getting new leads through Instagram? Oh, I get that, yeah. but I get, I do speaking engagements occasionally when it fits the travel thing a little bit. So I've done those all over, uh, Europe right. and, America and whatever. My favorite one actually was uh, doing, uh, I did the London Fly Fishers in London a couple years ago, uh, founded in 1887. Huh. Uh, anyway, but it, you, it's the historic, It's a you're there around history. There's little glass cases with famous books and reels and equipment from Theodore Gordon or whatever it was, oh, yeah. or, you know. So it's really charming that way, and um, yeah. and also when you do that, then somebody will come up and say, "Well, that was a lo- lovely show. Uh, you must come out and fish my water on the test, yeah. or the itch it or something." So you get a lot of invites that way by yeah. you know doing that. Yeah, that's right. Anything else as we wrap this up that you wanted to um, highlight that we missed at all today? Oh no, but just uh, if somebody is interested in calendars, just have them email me, David Lambrodden at telus.net. Um, I leave um, a, a couple dozen usually in, in Bozeman, my buddy's where I do my summer shipping, uh, all, all in envelopes ready to go. So um, I send them an email and say, here, please send one calendar to this person or whatever I do. So that's a good way to pick up a, a single calendar. If you okay. want to five or more, six or more or something, get a hold of me directly. Um, okay. The price is a lot cheaper if you buy six, you know, postage. It's all about postage. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what is the price for a calendar? If you just buy a, if you just buy a calendar, a single calendar, send a calendar, $18 postpaid US for me, um, a, a fly shop. It's usually around $9. Um, if it's a fishing club, uh, which I, which I actually, I do lots of that now, uh, usually it's around $7 for a fishing club. Oh, wow. Sometimes for conservation, conservation groups, it's free I, or, or any kid I run into that has to have any money. So, you know, young punk or something, yeah. I give them away. So, right. um, anyway, that's kind of how, how it all works there. But yeah, that's a good deal. Uh, fly shops. So, you know, there's a little bit, it just gets cheaper as you get into the, more of the conservation stuff. Um, so, but the nice way to, to buy them, if you buy, say five or more, um, they're only like eight, it depends on the country in the U S it's $8 and Canada, I yeah. charge a little bit more cause the dollar is different. So it's cheaper to buy six of them. So I get a lot gotcha. of people buying those for Christmas presents. Yeah. They're great. So, yeah. They're, and they're big calendars. These aren't like little mini eight by 11s. These are like full yeah, size. What's pack- the dimension? Uh, 12 by 12, they fold out to 12 by 24. Yeah. So, and I just put as much information as I can. There'd be, on, I try on every page to be uh, some sort of a fish. I don't like generally too often to have a full 
big thing for a fish shot, but I like a scenic guy fishing kind of generally as a, as a, as the main one, but there'll be a, there'll be a fish in there. There's three photos on each on the setup of both pages. So there'll be some fly patterns and some fish and a beautiful scenic. So, and I just put as much information as I can in there and, um, and a lot of people kind of collect them. I, I get people that will say, you know, I, I, I'm missing the, you know, 2003 and the 2007. Do you have those? Oh, you know, wow. I usually keep, I keep a half a dozen, you know, because it's a reference oh, you do. place to go. Well, you know, there might be something on the, on, uh, you know, Rock Creek. And I'll say, well, you know, stay at Phillipsburg Motel. That's you know, a, a really nice place. It's only a 15 minute drive to the yep. you know, 20 minute drive to the creek. Uh, you know, so they, so I put a lot of information in there. So I guess it makes it added value, you know. Yeah, added value, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. So you got a little information on each one on the on the well, maybe the location or at least the, the fishing the the area. Yeah. So it's just a it's just a way to to add value and people you know use it as a reference point. So most people when they buy them you know privately they just they never toss them out. They just stack them in the corner of the office and then they can draw upon them when they're going to go someplace. Gotcha. Or same thing. You know, when they yeah. look, just like when they look at my Instagram account, they can there'll be all kinds of information on fly patterns, um, places to go, where to stay. You know, I just a little sentence too with a photo uh, really adds to it. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Well, let's take it out here. We mentioned some tips. I, I just want to, well, we got a couple little random segment we're going to do here. Um, so let's talk again on the photography. You mentioned a couple things. Would you, could you throw out a couple tips on just like you're on the river, you've got a camera, maybe it's an iPhone. What would you tell somebody to take a nice shot if they're out oh, there well, to get Oh, well, the some- most common uh, thing that people miss when you're on a river taking pictures, um, first off, you want to take a picture up the river, if you can, or down the river, but up the river is the best because it shows the gradient of the river. Hmm. And also, if you got a friend there with a fish or something, you're putting as much information in that picture as possible, unless you're trying to hide the river, not to show hmm. it or something. Yeah. But so you've got you've got a whole, you can see the landscape, what the, the lay of the land oh, looks yeah. like. You've got the mountains, the river, uh, and, the, and your guy there. And also, if you want to do a little fun with the photo, you can kind of use with a telephoto lens, you can kind of blur the background a little bit if you zoom in, and it makes a little bit of a watercolor background, like a portrait, and, and the guy stands out. But when people take a picture of their buddy with a fish, and it's just a side-on thing, yeah. just some guy, some rocks, and some mud, you know, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's a nothing photo. Another yeah. thing that really puts a little... A nod in my knickers, not the Kiwi saying, or a bee in your yeah. bonnet, uh, is, uh, <laughs> that makes you feel mad as a snake or smart as pain, yeah. um, is the is what people, this whole thing is just kills me now. It's a standard deal now. Everybody pushes the, ca- the fish right out to the camera. Oh, it makes know, to, the fish bigger. To make it look as big as possible. Yeah. And I just think that what a sorry turn of events in photography that that's been. And that's probably here to stay. It, it adds ego and competition to the photo. I think it's Trying to make bit it look bigger. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm glad you say that because I think it's kind of funny because I remember back in the day we used to joke about that a little bit, be like one of our friends would do that and be like, hey, oh, yeah. you know. So I've always for a long time never did that just because I always thought about that. But I didn't even notice that. So people are doing that a lot. They're sticking it way out there. Oh, it's just, it's standard, but you, on all my calendars and all the stuff that I produce, um, you know, I like to shoot a picture. The fish are so beautiful, especially down in New Zealand or wherever, you know, it, when I, someone hooks a fish, I'm looking at real clear water right around my feet where the gravel is the right size. And I'll say, oh, it's landed right in his, this area. And then they'll take a picture of the fish just barely submerged. So he doesn't really miss a breath, he or she. Yep. Um, and it just it looks like scotch on the rocks. You know, you just got this clear yeah. water and you got a fish there. That looks a lot better than some guy grinning and holding it up. Yeah. You know, that's grin, so yeah. over overdone. 
Um, yeah. So, and I, and for a joke one time for Insta, uh, for a Facebook posting of four or five years ago, we did that for a joke. I said, I, I had a friend of mine cut, cut a four or five pound fish there, one of our little Spring Creek favorite places. I said, this one, I said, push it all the way to the camera. And I took a picture and I took a picture. And then I had one, right, just a normal one, him looking down at it, just right on the side there in the water. And I posted that and I said, um, here are the captions uh, with, with uh, for these. You put these captions to these pictures. Caption one. Um, here's a, a, a nice, you know, my a nice fish, you know, four pounder, um, you know, with uh, my friend caught. And then here the, the caption two. Here's a shot of, of some guy who's insecure about the size of his penis. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, and you know, yeah. people said they'd respond. They'd say. Oh, that's not the same fish. That's a different fish. That's a different fish. You know. <laughs> oh, right. Exactly the same fish. We told same them. Same fish. But I mean, just to kind of make to poke a stick and poke fun at these jerks that do that. And I just yeah. get sick of that. But we do take a shot of it. I'll say, here's one for your wife, your girlfriend, or something. You know, he'll lift out of the water, kind of traditional. But usually, it's real close to the water. The water running off of it. So gotcha. what you what you do there when you want to do that? Take get the camera all set up. Leave the fish in the water the whole time. You know, get your framing. Figure out how the polarization works. Yeah. That's a big thing. Use a polarizer. I use it about ninety percent of the time on a beautiful okay. sunny day. That enhances colors, takes the glare off of water. Yeah. Uh, anyway, get it all set up. Get the flash. If you're going to use that, a little fill flat, whatever you want to do, and say, okay, lift them up. So he just lifts it up and bang, you bang off a shot or two, put it, and then back in the water. So the, you might hold the, you might detain the fish for a minute or two, but the, the, the time that that fish is actually out of the water and not being able to breathe is probably 10 seconds or 15 seconds split over three sessions or something. So anyway, there's no point in trying to kill the fish. No. So you're saying on that one, take the, is that, is that a chance? Like you're saying, put it in the water and can you get that shot of like the water running, dripping off of the fish? Oh yeah, and yeah, you'll see that when you look at my first shot, you'll see water dripping off the fish, and that's a good sign that that just lifted up right there. You know, it wasn't lifted up, you know, 20 seconds earlier or something. So yeah. get the whole thing, get the composition all set up, and then say, okay, lift. You know, they pull, yeah. pull it up, bang. You know, you got it. So that's the best thing you can do to to be a good bartender. Gotcha. So you gave us like right there four or five good tips. Would you have a couple more just to add this to the the pack the punch? Anything else comes to mind? Like, well, I don't know. I really like. I recommend little zoom lenses, and all the cameras take great shots. So if you want, and if you want to make a fish, here, here's a good tip. If you want to make a fish look nice and big, and and do it kind of in an honest way, yeah, I'll get back. I'll have the fish, like say, I shoot a vertical. I'll have the fish kind of go corner to corner, not straight up and down or straight across or anything. So you get a lot of a lot of fish in there for the size of oh, the yeah. frame. Anyway, and then get it and have it in the water, and then I'll I'll focus on the eye because that's the most critical thing that you want that eye and the, and the face sharp as a tack. It can get softer towards the tail, which it invariably will a little bit. I close the aperture down to f8 or f11, um, you know, so I get more depth of field. Uh, but I also will get back, and I'm not going to, if you shoot it with a wide angle part of the lens, because, oh, that'll make it look big. It makes it look long and skinny. But so I get back, and I'll shoot it at the, uh, I, most of my, my favorite lens is a 16 to 80. You know, that's pretty much all I would carry up a river. I don't want to carry it a bunch of crap. Oh, okay. Anyway, I'll shoot it at 80 at the other end. So I'm making that fish look shorter and thicker by zooming in. 
But if I shot it with wide angle, it would look like, wow, it's a big head and a skinny body. I mean, you know. Um, so anyway, so that does it. Also, also, you don't want anybody, you don't want any compression on the fish. So when people are squeezing fish mm. or trying to hold it with one hand or whatever, you're really rupturing their inter internal organs potentially. Yeah. So I turn your left hand lengthwise so and they have that pectoral fin will go between your index finger and your middle finger but try and minimize the finger stuff so you you share that weight of that fish along your hand and lengthways not a, not directly at a right angle and i don't do that where you hold the i like i grab the tail of the fish so what you're going to miss a little bit of the tail shot grab it like you're shaking hands with it and All then right. And then when you want to make that fish look its best, you don't make, you don't try to make it look long. You try to make it look short. You you crank it just a little bit down and a little bit concave. So all of a sudden you turn a you turn the fish into what I call William Shatner. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, nice. You know you make them look thicker. And, you know so you can do little things like that to to make the fish look as as good as possible. Right. And, right. This is awesome. And, fee, and, and hen fish are really my I, a high percentage of the fish you'll see in my work are hen fish because steelhead everything they have the smaller heads like lag salmon you know they have a small beautiful head it just makes the body look so much better and bigger than a big male oh, fish right. talk, you know all jaws and stuff yeah so yeah. and then so wait till you see a fish that's really beautiful and then take five or ten shots of it don't just take a fish shot of everything I you know I've right. got a zillion fish shots i have to be a really nice fish otherwise it's just another four gotcha. pound so you got the perfect model so you're talking about getting the perfect fish model for your photos oh yeah everyone yeah i'm famous for it i, I yeah. should say that but that they're all good. alive they're all in the water they're not squeezed yeah i don't allow that uh they show respect for the fish uh anyway that's awesome when yeah. you take these back so you got the, the photos do you do a lot of editing for to the photo before it goes in the calendar like the photo room and stuff? Uh, not a whole lot, but I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll add, I'll enhance the color a little bit. Um, or, you know, I'll, I'll, if there's shadows and if there's a problem photo, you know, like, for example, the more big problem photo would be a dark river and a big, you know, bunch of sun bleached rocks on the side of the river or something. So it might be, if you can avoid those rocks because it's, it's too much, you're asking too much dynamic range of the camera. So when you take, when it averages out the exposure, the rocks won't have much detail. They'll be kind of overexposed. So that's when you want to, on the computer, underexpose the highlights, drop the highlights, drop mm. the whites, and all of a sudden you can bring out more detail. Um, and I like shooting JPEGs, and my cameras are the, are the you know, Fuji is really known as a great JPEG camera. But when I shoot up, when I'm going up a river, I shoot JPEGs and RAWs. RAWs give you a, a bigger file and are a little bit, you can edit a little bit more if there's a problem with the photo. You know, shooting too much shadow or too in the sun or whatever. But, um, Generally, I'll, what I'll do is I'll edit my JPEGs real quick. The ones I quickly like, you can identify quickly because they're already pretty much cooked in the camera with the way your settings are. Um, and then I'll see if I can make the raw better. Uh, and generally, I'd say 80% of the time, I can't make the raw look better than the JPEG. The JPEGs are just fine. Mm. There's also there's like a secret sauce in the, each camera, the way they render color. And it's hard to even... I mean, you can fiddle all you want with it, but with with RAWs, but um, RAWs will save your bacon if there's a problem photo. But JPEGs are the are, are just so easy to work with, yeah, and less computer 
less computer time, and yeah. and it's it's an overkill, you know. And they print calendar pages out; they just look fabulous. You can't tell the difference between what was a JPEG or what was a RAW. And uh, and then when you export the RAW anyway to your publisher, you're sending him a J, a, a JPEG anyway. It, it, it's you know that's yeah. what you send. Oh, you that's send what you JPEG. send. Yeah, yeah, JPEG it's or not edited. Or if they have cheap paper, like with Fly Fishery Magazine, for example, they print on such paper, it's so crappy and thin, you know, they're having a hard time. All the magazines are having a hard time making a, making a go of it. So yeah. they use crappy paper. So oh, really? A real colorful photo, they can't they can't replicate that on, on thin paper because the colors bleed and stuff. So then he'll say, okay, send me the raw of that, and then he'll edit it to the limit that their paper can handle. And that's why the calendar pictures look so nice is because it's pr they're all printed on real thick paper, you know, calendar thickness paper. So that gives you a big leg up over what magazines can do because it, it's the quality of the paper that allows that great saturation. Gotcha. Wow, there's a whole world of uh, photography we could dig in here. Um, we'll, we'll leave that maybe for the next one. I think what we'll do is in the show notes, uh, we'll put a bunch of great, some of your photos in the, uh, on, you know, the show notes and the blog post so people can take a look at your stuff. And oh, we'll sure. Try to, yeah, we'll try to select some good photos. Maybe we'll talk to you. Well, I know you sent us some. We'll, we'll put some I of the ones I you sent I think I sent you about 29 with captions. If you can't yeah, exactly. put, put yeah. them all in there, they'll, they'll cover so much of everything we've talked about. Oh, and good. people can visualize what, they're, what we've been okay. referring to. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get we'll circle around to that and, and give us as we take this out of here. I was thinking about again the travel. This was really focused a lot on travel, and at least for me, thinking about you know heading out there. What would yeah. be a, would you would you have a travel tip for somebody maybe that's thinking about putting together a trip? Anything you would tell them to kind of get prepared or on the way? Well, stay in good physical shape. That's yeah. one because that's what it, that's what it requires. And you know, late, later in life, you can fish lakes all you want. Uh, but right now, you want to do the big stuff. Or, you know, the, the terrible waiting. You know, if you're younger, you know, go to the Umpqua, all that kind of crap, yeah. which I won't do again. Uh, the runs are terrible anyway. But I mean, you know, there's there's a kind of a formula. If you're just starting out and you get whatever, go to Alaska. Go catch a ton of fish. You know, you can go up yeah. there. Wear your arm out, and all of a sudden you learn how to fight fish, play fish, get them on the reel, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of you know, a logical order. And then later, people don't go much back up there, but that's a good place to start out to, to learn about fighting fish. And you probably can do the same thing with saltwater locations as well. And then you know, and then you just kind of refine things as you go through your travel, and you pretty soon you collect places that you like more than other places that fit your style of fishing. And here's a here's what you learn. How, learn how to catch fewer fish because you want the, you want it challenging. You want to be tested. Uh, you know, the worst thing is to go up to uh, – last time I did that, I went to Alaska. They had the record on the Connectauk River, a record run of coho salmon, silver salmon. You yeah. got one every cast. I mean, that was like hassling wildlife. I mean, and then, you know, and I remember there was a lawyer from – from uh, Denver, Colorado was in there and he was up there trying to break his record. Last year he caught 58 one day and the, today he's going to get 59 or 60. And, you know, and I said, well, if you tried walking them, you know, like we put those walkers, the wall or waker things on top. Oh, yeah, the wall or waker, yeah. The walker, whatever they call them. Anyway, and, and, you know, and they would come up and they would take that and, you know, and it was like it made it more difficult. Yeah. And, I, and he said, well, why would I do that when this thing, when my big black leachy gooey gobby thing worked so well so he didn't get it he was yeah. just into the number thing i totally agree I, we were just up there in alaska a few weeks ago and and we went out to the spot which is a coho run and uh i mean you know we cast out the pink streamer we made uh you know stripped it in you know and it was fun for about five fish and then after that i was like well okay yeah we're, i'm good i'm good where, where are the rainbows at <laughs> yeah 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 you, you want to yeah refine it so um anyway and that's what the 
as we go through this journey, we we learn. We learn. I remember I was in Montana one time. I was I was on the on the way up to Alaska, and I was talking to Al Troth there in Dillon, Montana. Oh yeah. And I said, God, I really love you know fishing Poindexter Slough and the Spring Creeks. And I said, you know, I, I've got to go. I've got this job. I got to go to you know up in uh, Alaska. And he just t- said, Yeah. He goes, But when you do that, you learn how to fish. You you learn from every experience, every type of fishing, every type of line, how to read water, how to get flies in different positions in the river or, you know, just an accumulation of knowledge. And then you just keep refining it, refining it. And pretty soon people take it ultimate limit. Some people just fish dry fly only or like yeah. Tom McWayne, you know, yep. I, when I, I give him flies. I'm, I visit him every year and he, you know, he doesn't fish nymphs at all. He says, I'd rather get stabbed in the eye with a pitchfork or something or some comment like that. So he's just refined it down. He just wants to minimize his impact on the fishery and, and up the challenge. So he just fished dry flies yeah. only. That's right. Um, anyway, and I I respect that. That just we all kind of refine things down, and, and learning how to enjoy you know catching fewer fish because you you created a situation where they're a lot harder to catch. I want to fish places that really challenge me. Exactly. That's why I think you know I think it's what everybody. That's the journey. I think as you stay in it, you you stay on that journey. That's why people love fishing for steelhead and musky and all these hard and yeah. permit you know and all these fish because it's a challenge. It's part of yeah. like the, you know what I mean. I, if, what I, when I fish cutthroat trout, which I really love because they're so beautiful and the countryside so beautiful, I fish those every summer on the BC Rockies. That's fun for a few days because you can't. The fish are they're pretty bitey. They're a, they'd be a guide's best friend. Right. Uh, they're easy to catch, although they do get some hatches and things. But anyway, but that doesn't hold your attention like the Henry's Fork or something. You see the crowd that goes there, and I used to do that all the time. Still do a little bit. They go for the summer. They're fishing that for three weeks straight or something because it's so challenging. You got to just get your head tilted the right way, and you know the feed and all those little minute things that make a difference and how the fly drags or doesn't drag and whatever. So uh, that's when you fish a lot. Yeah, that's what you want. You know, that's you what want, you want that. Yeah, want to be pushed. Yeah, uh, tell me about uh, just quickly, John Randall. What what was something you learned from John over the years? It sounds like you you know him pretty well. He's a a pretty big name and was around for a long time. I'm curious. Oh, John Randolph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he just, he, first off, uh, one thing, uh, just a little thing he said one time when everyone's getting excited about starting a business or getting going, or he says, first thing you want to realize is that the fly fishing business is, is 10% of as large as you think it is. You know, we think it's everywhere. It's not. It's not as big as people think it is, you know, because we get so caught up in our own love for it. We just think it's like religion. Well, it's, everyone must love and feel the same way. Well, you know, it's it's still not as big as, you, as yeah, people think tiny. it is. So think about that when you're trying to calculate if you can make a living out of it or a business or something. Oh, right. But he just had a great sense of humor um, and and um, still does and um, knows everybody. And, you know, he was just a hilarious guy to talk to and go on a travel on, on trips with. We did a lot of traveling. Oh, he did. He did some yeah, trips yeah. with them. Well, it, it, for a while there, today, all the advertising controls what the magazines do. They have to be pretty specific. They talk about this particular lodge. They're getting invited to fish this place in Argentina. The story's about that guy, that lodge, that, you know, why you want to go there. In the good old days, uh, you could write about stuff. I would do stories like a summer in West Yellowstone or a season in Alaska and just go right through the whole season, all the different, all right. how it unfolded. So you could talk in generality. I'd cover a lot of information, but yeah. um, so that was – so what I would do is I'd, I would call up somebody or some chili or someplace and say, boy, you know, I, I, the um, the I, 
John Randolph, talking to John Randolph the other day, I just kind of make this stuff fly, fly by the seat of my pants. I said, you know, I'm interested in doing a story. And they said, oh, we'd love to have a story. And then I get a hold of John and say, hey, those guys will invite us down to do a story. You go, oh, yeah, let's do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you just create these, this, this, this thing here. And we did, I did that all the planet there, you know, for yeah. years. Right. So, so that's what you're back in the day. You were working with a lot of the magazines, John, and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Now, actually, I don't want to go to these places. I'm not going to ever go again to Russia or China or uh, probably Central America. Or, you know, I like to just go. I like New Zealand and British Columbia. I like places where trout, salmon, steelhead live in uh, that environment. Norway, you know, the, those kind of places, uh, you know, uh, civilized areas. Uh, right, so right, right. I used to do saltwater a little bit too, and that was fun for a while. And when I went to the Seychelles, that kind of ruined me because that was so perfect. There was no big boat rides across Ascension Bay in Mexico or Costa Rica. Sharks out there on the Rio Grande mouth, or this. It was it was 75 degrees Fahrenheit every day. It was you fished all day. You never saw another boat. You never saw another angle. Just you and your buddy and the guide. They had it so set up there like a park like thing. You the whole day. Nothing. It's just you and the fish, and there was everything you could think of. Uh, after that, nothing really kind of compared, really. Right. <laughs> it's hard to compare to the say, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Like that. Nice. Nice, David. Well, I think uh, I think we've done a pretty good job today, you know, digging in. Like we said, we touched on New Zealand. I think the BC thing, obviously, that's a huge. I love BC as well. We've done a few episodes on that, so we'll we'll put some links out to some of that stuff we've done. Yeah. Um, but we'll send everybody out to uh, David Lambroughton on Instagram, and they can connect with you or, or if they have questions or want to grab one of your calendars. Yeah, tell us .net. I help people all the time, just like people help me. Yeah, you know, that's we're part of a kind of a big community, really. So uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm happy to do that. It, it just it just it's playing forward, really. And yeah, it makes yeah. people happy. Fishing makes people happy. Makes it does. Sure, to their kids, their job, their employees, or whatever. It's a it's it's a necessary thing to to reboot ourselves, really. Yeah. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Well, I'll leave it there, and we'll uh, say uh, good luck, you know, uh, to your trip. You're heading out, uh, you know, November twentieth uh, to yep. New Zealand. Well, I'll hopefully be able to. I'll stay in touch with you as you go. But yeah, thanks again for all the time today. I really appreciate you shedding some light on New Zealand and your, you know, your amazing history in fly fishing. Yeah, I got to make a living doing what I would have gladly have done for free, really. So I feel lucky about that for sure. That is cool. All right, good. Well, hey, thanks. It's been fun talking, and uh, happy to help anybody. So there you go. You can go to wetflyswing.com slash 380-380. We'll give you some show notes and some of the stuff we talked about. We'll have a couple resources there. that will help you dig in a little bit more to New Zealand. Uh, Before we get out of here, I want to give a listener shout out to uh, Johan Koch. Johan listens to the show on Spotify whenever he is on long drives from Auckland, uh, where he lives in New Zealand. Uh, Perfect fit for this show. Johan says his favorite trout, uh, he loves doing this. He's heading to his favorite trout fishing on the central North Island, about four to five hours away. So he's got a long trip uh, and he listens to the podcast, which is amazing. Uh, Johan also said he uh, he's interested in uh, some topics about floating rivers and getting the right boat uh, for some of the rivers. So I'm, I'm going to be uh, excited to track this down and put together a little episode on choosing a boat. It sounds like maybe... One of those rafts for kind of medium-sized uh, rivers is going to be what he needs. So, Johan, I want to say thank you for the support and thanks for checking in all the way from New Zealand. I hope to get out there and hope to put that trip together. Uh, maybe get the uh, get the whole family down there and do a uh, spend more than just a few weeks, spend some time out there. Uh, 
I'd love to hear from you. If you've been uh, enjoying the show, you want to connect with me, you can uh, send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. If you have a show uh, episode idea, topic, anything that's the best way, or on social media, wetflyswing, and you give me a heads up, and I will do my best to get a shout out to you on this episode. We've got more events coming. We are just wrapping up some of the stuff we did uh, this last month uh, for our Alaska week that we had going. We've got some more things. We're going to be heading up uh, for steelheading uh, here very soon and going to be hitting some of those second run uh, fish that are going to be coming into the Great Lakes. I'm excited to do that. So if you want to check out right now, we've got a uh, page, wetflyswing.com slash events. Uh, E-V-E-N-T-S, events. And this will show you what we have coming up this year. we got some steelhead. We potentially have a uh, like a Florida trip. This is one and some other stuff coming up. And uh, so I'm excited. If you want to get a chance to jump on one of these trips and, uh, and enter one of these giveaways, this will all be at this page. This will be the easiest place to go and check all that out right now. All right, I'm going to head out of here and I get to the next one and get to the next deal. we got a lot of a lot of work to do. We're backed up here, so I'm going to get on to it. Uh, if you get a chance, we'd love to see you on a trip or connect with me online. Do that anytime. Like I said, wet fly swing anywhere online and you can do that. And I hope you have a good evening, a good morning, or a good afternoon wherever you are in the world. And I'm excited to talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.